One of the things we as fundamentalists and even traditional LDS folks fight against all the time is stereotypes. Some of the worst stereotypes are reserved for women who are fundamentalist or traditional LDS. You hear the same accusations all the time. They all must wear prairie dresses. They must be so beaten down and oppressed. They must not be educated if they choose to live this way. And the list goes on and on. Well, I think those who hold and perpetuate those stereotypes are about to have some serious pushback. On this episode, I have five women on from various backgrounds in Mormon fundamentalism to talk about their experiences as women within fundamentalism. They are Ann Hatch, Andrea Jessup, Charlotte Erickson, Melissa Erickson, and Teresa. At the end of this conversation, I think those stereotypes will be shattered. So buckle up as I go to Relief Society on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. So I want to take just a few moments here and just say thank you for listening. I can never tell you how much it means to me that you spend your time here with me. Now, on top of that, last year I received donations that helped me upgrade the audio, equipment, and software. This year I want to do the same thing for video. Now, if you want to help out and make a donation, you can do that by going to mormonrenegade.com and making a donation there. Also, check out the Mormon Renegade Supply Store at mormonrenegade.com and pick up some merch. Now, if you can't do any of those, I completely understand. It's not like it's been a banner year necessarily for our finances. So maybe just keep the podcast in your prayers. Finally, as I've started to do more video, there's a YouTube channel up for the podcast. But uh, just between you and me, yeah, I ain't going to be there very long because I have a feeling I'm going to get kicked off. So to stay one step ahead of that, I've made a channel on Rumble. So head on over to Rumble, look up the Mormon Renegade podcast channel there, and crush that like and subscribe button. Thank you. I have been very careful on this podcast to only advertise for items that I feel will add value and purpose in your life. That said, I've discovered a book that I really believe should be in every Mormon's library. The book is called Beneath Sheep's Clothing. In this book, the author, Julie Beeling, breaks down the communist infiltration into our schools, institutions, and perhaps even most distressing, our churches. The book backs up its claims with well-cited sources so you can go do the research yourself. This book will allow you to see the communist tactics and gives you the tools on how to combat this insidious movement in America. Julie is right now trying to raise money to make the book into a documentary, and I can't recommend donating to this cause strongly enough. So head over to mormonrenegade.com and you can find the link to buy the book and donate to the documentary in this episode page or scroll down to the very bottom of the landing page at mormonrenegade.com to find a link to buy the book. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. I've received a couple different emails. I shouldn't say a couple, quite a few emails over the last six months asking to hear more from the sisters. So I reached out to Ann Hatch to maybe help me put together um, a panel that could talk about uh, experiences and fundamentalism from from a woman's point of view. And so I have on uh, Andrea Jessup, um, Anne uh, uh, Hatch, and Teresa, I'm I'm sorry, I forgot your last name. 
I'm actually going to not use my last name. Perfect. See, I knew exactly what I was doing. <laughs> and right, uh, <laughs> Charlotte and uh, Melissa Erickson. So, ladies, thank you for being here. It's good You're to welcome. be here. Yeah. So, good to see you all. real quick, I just want to do a you know a quick introduction. <laughs> excuse me, a quick introduction with everybody, and uh, we'll go ahead and we'll start with Anne. All right. Hi, I'm Ann, Ann Hatch, and I was uh, raised in the LDS church, uh, fifth generation LDS, where my family joined in like the Kirtland era of the LDS church. Um, my hobbies include teaching the gospel, doing genealogy work. Uh, I teach a genealogy class from time to time, um, gardening, and spending time with my family. Um, I do have a degree um, in information technology, and I work in that line of work, and I'm very lucky to be able to, to do that. Uh, I've served in many capacities in the LDS Church and in Christ Church, the branch, and I currently live in Nevada with my family. It's awesome. Teresa? My name's Teresa. Um, so I was not raised LDS. I actually joined the LDS Church when I was 14 years old. Um, <clears throat> I got married in the LDS temple when I was in 1991. So I was 19 when that took place. And then in 96 is when, um, we joined fundamentalism and then we joined Christchurch, the branch at that time. So, um, definitely a ride, you know, for, from 14 to 20 to 26, you know, but, um, been, it's been it's been a good ride you know and there's been a lot of a lot of good stuff along the way and a lot of um challenging challenging things you know uh i love genealogy i've been interested in genealogy for a long time and helped me get even more interested in it i love cooking and i love working with herbs and doing gardening that's awesome thanks Teresa. uh andrea so um I'm Andrea Jessup. I I was born into the LDS Church, but my father started studying fundamentalism when I was about six months old. And then he went on to join the AUB. We still continued going to church till I was seven, and then we stopped going, and we just completely went into the AUB and um so most of my youth was spent in the AUB but I also had a lot of experience going to the LDS church to just look at the differences and see see what it was and choose for myself um what I wanted to do. And um, so fast forward years later, and we are no longer part of the AUB. We are independent, but um, still believe fully in the gospel and in, <laughs> in the teachings of the prophets. So, Awesome. Thanks, Andrea. Charlotte. All right. So I'm Charlotte Erickson. Um, I've been married to Joshua for 20 years and I have five children with him. And I can 
about you. Yeah. <laughs> this is Melissa. She'll have her own intro too, but she has two children too, but we count all seven children as mm -hmm. ours. Uh, all three of us were raised in the LDS church. And uh, it's an interesting question. How did I convert to fundamentalism? Because really the plural marriage came first before the fundamentalism. Um, so I was just going about my normal life and God just told me very clearly that Melissa was going to marry my husband and it's its own story that actually Joshua has told his side of the story on this podcast several you know episodes ago but um obviously the church kicked us out and here we are but um so our religious journey has been a long one I think an interesting one because we were all faithful in the LDS church and then we convinced Melissa to marry us and we had our own like version of fundamentalism going on. And then together we've kind of evolved. Um, so it doesn't look so much like a Brigham Young fundamentalism, but more like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, <laughs> I guess. So that's what kind of what Awesome. Yeah, so I did want to mention that although I was raised in the LDS church, my parents were converts uh, from Catholicism, both of them. Uh, my grandparents on my father's side joined the church when he was a teenager, and then my mother joined when she was 19. So I got all the Catholic and the LDS guilt all mixed together. And then Joshua and Charlotte were both a multiple generation um, LDS with, you know, pioneer heritage. And so I was the only one not descended from polygamous. <laughs> so I find that always so amusing. But um, like she said, I have two little boys with uh, Joshua. I have three older children that are grown and gone. And our religious journey has been very interesting. Like she said, uh, the plural marriage did come first. I was uh, sure that I was convinced by them, but no, I received my own absolute witness that I'm supposed to be married to Joshua. And it's been interesting as we've gone through this journey because we've held to some truths that we believe and those are that God doesn't change that he's the same yesterday today and forever and that the rules are still the same and that Christ lived that flawlessly he lived Torah flawlessly and so in our world to do what Christ did we follow the commandments that were given at that time as well as the enduring ones with the feasts that are commanded to be done forever. And so we have our own um, project we're working on, which is called the Zarahemla Foundation. It's not a church, it's a gathering, a gathering of people who want to learn more about the feasts, about keeping Torah, and how the scriptures really do all match up. And it's really been very amazing. I've read the Book of Mormon with different eyes. I read through the filter of correlation as a child and then you know in seminary and institute and then I had a waking uh, post 2012 and uh, realized that I was a Gentile and now I'm reading it again as someone who's of the house of Israel from through a Hebraic lens and it's been very very sobering and very joyous at the same time. That's awesome. You know, as I, I've had the chance to talk to Joshua, I find his 
depth of knowledge just to be amazing. So I'm, I'm so thankful that, that, that there's folks out there like that who, who keep those traditions alive because it does show some types and shadows there. So let me start here. Um, the bulk of, of the panel here has um, converted from the LDS church. And the one thing about Mormonism, and it doesn't really matter what branch of Mormonism, we're a very social people. We're, we're a people that, that like to talk with others. We like the, those gatherings. And so in coming out of the mainstream LDS church, um, for again, for those who, who had to make that change, and Andrea, uh, Jessup, I got some questions for you later since you were raised in <laughs> fundamentalism, for sure. But real quick... What were some of the hardships of coming out of the LDS church? I mean, because it's not just, again, it's not just where you go on Sundays. It's, it really is kind of who you are se- six days a week plus Sunday. So what was that like? What were some of the challenges? And uh, feel free, anybody to answer, and we can just kind of take turns here going around. I'll jump in. Okay. And then Teresa will go next, because we both were like, oh, well, at the same time. So, you know, for me growing up, I mean, I didn't grow up in, in Utah, I grew up in Idaho, but very LDS rich, you know, uh, part of Idaho. And so for me, there was, there was the judgments, you know, it was, people didn't understand how I could do this. They didn't understand why I would do this, you know, and their big um, concern was, well, you're going to show your husband. And that wasn't, like my biggest concern at all with, with any of it. I mean, it's not easy from time to time, but that wasn't my biggest concern as a, as a sister. Um, but it was more of the, the judgment from my family and close friends that, that killed me. And that was really hard, you know, growing up in the LDS church. I mean, I'm an only child, but I have a bazillion cousins and we all grew up around each other and to be disowned by the majority of them, like four out of 50 some first cousins will talk to me. And Mm. that was really hard because, you know, we did a lot of things. We had a lot of family activities and stuff. And I helped with all of those things with organizing and, and to have them say, well, they wouldn't come if I'd be there or, just all kinds of stuff. That was the hardest. But I think for me, you know, the most interesting part of why I did this was the doctrine and also because of genealogy. So growing up, my aunt, um, I had a couple aunts that did genealogy work professionally and my mom was into it, my grandmother. And growing up, we used to go to the family history libraries, right, that they have. And I learned how to write because my grandmother would read the microfiche and she'd tell me what I was writing down and filling out the papers. And then we started sharing stories in family home evening of our ancestors. And when we heard the testimonies of my great, great grandparents and why they were living it and why they chose Mormonism, why they came to America in some cases, um, always set with me very deeply and I knew from a very young age and I actually even announced it once in our family 
um, home evening that I would probably be living this one day. And, you know, the answer is, of course, we all will, you know, in the millennium when Christ right. returns. And mm -hmm. I was like, no, I don't know. I think it's going to happen before that. And, and here I am, you know, the, with all the doctrines of fundamentalism, you know, and Teresa and I have talked about this, but plural marriage is only one aspect of little. many things yeah very little yeah, it's little really it is it's big but it's little you guys know what i'm talking about yeah you know but the best one for me my favorite is knowing who my heavenly father is mm -hmm. knowing that i have a heavenly mother and being able to talk about her and to feel a connection and i just i love the adam god doctrine the most out of all of them. And I think that wasn't to me, the doctrine wasn't the hardship at all. It was the losing of my family that said, we always be together until we weren't. So has, has any of your family came back around now? And since, you know, given this, you know, a little bit of time and that sort of thing, some of them, um, but not all. And I have an aunt and, um, and her family very, strongly against anything you know in fundamentalism and they're very i guess staunch mormons you would say and you know they i mean my one aunt she did come to my mother's funeral but after talking with another cousin i said you know he says well is martha i shouldn't have said her name sorry but is she going to be um, around, is she going to be invited? And I said, well, why wouldn't she come? Because in my mind, why wouldn't she come? She's family. And um, so he talked to his sister and she called me and she said, you know, here's her phone number. Why don't you call her and personally invite her? Otherwise she probably won't come. And so that was hard, but I called her and I said, I want you to come. And that was the first time I talked to her in, in years. I mean, probably 15 to 17 years and she came and you know she she gave me a hug we were a little distant but I think it kind of opened up something because she actually talked to me since then or it was you know after that one time before she passed away and you know it was a good conversation but I still have some cousins that that they'll come to events but they're not going to like walk up and give me a hug and we're not going to talk about old times or anything right awesome Teresa, how about you? So let's, I'm going to back up just real quick. So I was raised in a, a foster family from 15 on. Okay. So I was joined the LDS church in 14, 15, went into the system. My foster parents were my Sunday school teacher and my, those who were raised in the LDS church and know my, my maids teacher. Okay. So oh, my, wow. my maid teacher and my Sunday school teacher, they took me in, they got their license and took me in as their foster child. And I lived with them and that, so if I talk about my parents, the, those are my parents that I talk about. Okay. Now jump ahead when um, we decided to join fundamentalism, I lost them too. And that, that was tough. You know, that was really hard because at 15, I lost an entire family. And then at 26, I felt like I lost an entire family again. Now, my foster dad, my dad, he has come around and we are a lot closer now. So that's good. 
Um, but my friends, it was real interesting at the time because I guess at the time I never realized how judging people could be. Right. I mean, I knew people could be judging, but I mean, they throw a lot of, they think they know what they don't know. And that's what it comes down to. You know, it was, oh, so he's going to get another wife. And I'm like, well, you know, I guess maybe someday, you know, that wasn't why we came into it. That's obviously the first thing that everybody, and I say everybody loosely, but the majority of the world will jump into fundamental fundamentalism. Oh, plural marriage or the world knows it as polygamy. Right. You know, I like to call it plural celestial marriage myself. Um, in regards to the doctrine, it was interesting because in my foster family, in my, my foster dad, I remember one day I went to church and I was really upset. I came home from church. I didn't take the sacrament that day. I was really upset. And he can't comes home and he says, why didn't you take the sacrament? And I said, cause I know what those boys were doing last night. I'm not taking the sacrament. And he was like, okay, well, you know, and so he has a big talk with me about it'll be, everything will be made right on the other side and da, 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 da. But then all of a sudden that conversation went into, it, this is ex almost exactly what he said. I can remember it. Like we're sitting at the table today. It's just like, you know, the LDS church, they don't like to talk about Adam being God, but you know, if you look at the scriptures, you know, Adam is God da, 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 da. and I'm looking at him like, okay. And then years later, we're learning the Adam God doctrine and that the LDS church doesn't teach it. And I'm like, so of course they do, you know, and no, they didn't, but obviously, you know, people were still believing it. They just decided not to talk about it because that would get them in trouble with the LDS right. church, you know? So, um, and then, well, before we joined uh, Christ church, the branch, we had a close friend of ours, from out in the Colorado city area. He's in the Centennial area. He, he worked with my husband at the time he worked with him and he, uh, he rented a room from us and he just happened to leave a lot of doctrinal books laying around. <laughs> and he just happened to talk a lot about the principles, you know, of the gospel. And, you know, I actually learned a lot from him, you know, so I don't know. For me, accepting the doctrine, it really wasn't hard for me. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And you said you said your your dad has kind of come come around a little bit, right? Yeah, actually, he's come around. I would say a lot of it. He says I'm his plural wife. <laughs> wow! Wow! That's wow. He, he likes we to joke be around. Funny, right? Yeah. yeah. Joker. But you know, I think, in my honest opinion. You know, sometimes people have things that knock them down in life and it kind of makes you come around to other things in your life. Sure, sure. And that it's sad that things like that happen, but sometimes that's that happens. Absolutely. So awesome. Well, thanks, Teresa. Mm -hmm. Um, Charlotte. Thank you. Um, yeah, that was actually a really rough transition. I'm I'm not gonna lie. So I was um, just happily going along in my LDS um, paradigm and Joshua was not as in the box 
as I was. And he tried for eight years of marriage to show me like more interesting doctrine in the scriptures and stuff. And I was just so like blind to what he was trying to do. And then for some reason, I don't know why the timing was just right. I happened upon um, the idea of blood atonement. And I was like, what the heck is that? And um, I searched blood atonement on LDS.org. And you want to know how many search results I got? Hmm. Zero, mm -hmm. none. There's nothing. And I was like, well, that's, it really bothered me because I thought, here's this supposedly Mormon doctrine. And on the other hand, I've been taught that you're not supposed to learn about Mormonism anywhere but LDS.org. Right. So what, what's a girl supposed to do? So I started reading about blood atonement on dangerous websites, you know, and I guess that was sort of the beginning of the end for me. But it was like, how do I reconcile like Brigham Young in general conference saying that if you if you don't believe in blood atonement, you don't believe in Jesus to nowadays the church issuing statements saying it was a false doctrine. Wow. So uh, I guess that was sort of my I don't know why, because to me, that's not that important of a doctrine. It's not even something we can enforce in our current state of affairs. And so the timing was just right for me. But there was a while there that I almost just couldn't navigate the minefield and just wanted to leave the church and stop believing in God. And because it was I just felt lied to and it was really challenging. So I but it, eventually I came to the point where I thought, well, the church is still the best place sure. for me to hang out and so i was in the church for a while thinking um this isn't all i was taught it was and yet it's still a great place to raise my family and it's still um the best i i have and so i'm just going to stay here but like in my heart i wasn't so attached anymore to the church and it was also um in the next couple of years that i started to realize that God actually didn't just want to teach me through prophets and general conference and the good books. He wanted to talk to me directly. And that kind of was news to me. Like I knew I could pray to get answers like, should you marry this person? Should you take this job? But I never considered that God wanted to like direct my day-to-day -day actions and like move me to do good things. And so when I learned that, um, that was that was probably <laughs> the biggest change in a way of looking at the world because now I started thinking, okay, I can keep all the commandments the church is teaching, and I can also start receiving personal revelation at the same time. So the very first personal revelation I got that was like not something the people around me were doing was I had the feeling that I should start wearing skirts and dresses all the time and stop wearing pants and I thought well if I heard that in general conference I would but then I realized this was God talking to me so I started wearing skirts and dresses all the time and it really bothered my dad he saw he noticed I never even told him he just noticed that I'd stop wearing pants and he said he said why do you only wear skirts and I said because I feel like that's what God's telling me to do dad and I thought he would respect that, but it made him really nervous because 
over his life, he's seen people kind of slightly alter their course and they're not so in the box. And he's seen that they end up thinking for themselves too much. And so he said, if you start wearing only dresses, you're going to end up in Southern Utah as a polygamist performing temple endowments in your living room. That's what he said. And he also tried to convince me to wear pants because he told me that the wives of the LDS apostles wear pants. And, and I said, okay, like, am I supposed to pattern myself after the wives of the apostles? Do you even know if they've had their calling election made sure? Like, why am I copying them? So that was like really surprising. I, I felt like I'd cast pearls before swine, like sharing this personal spiritual experience and then having him just reject it. And so that was kind of the beginning of my religious parting from my dad. And then, um, and then later when I became a polygamist, that was, that was the beginning of a very rough, how many years with my parents? Oh my Five years. It was really bad. He, so, um, he, at first, when I told my parents that Melissa was my sister wife, and we'd been keeping it secret for some time, it wasn't like they were invited to the wedding or something, okay, like it had already happened, and so I told them, and my parents were awesome in that very first conversation. My mom said, um, we didn't get to choose who you married, we didn't get to choose when you had children, we don't get to choose who you with your family, it's only our job to accept it and love you. My dad in that initial conversation told me that he would love Melissa as a daughter. And, um, and then literally, I don't know what happened. He spent the night with the devil. The next day, he had typed up this letter for me, calling me to repentance, accusing Joshua of adultery, basically calling Melissa whore and stuff. It was really, really bad. Wow. So um, we, we just... Uh, I guess I shouldn't go into too many details. It'll just make too long of a story. But I will say they've completely come around. Um, my siblings' lives have all totally um, fallen apart. And and so they look at us now and they're like, oh, wow, like the majority of our grandchildren in, in this family, they're very religious. They have a beautiful family, very highly functional, doing great with the kids and everything. And so now it's like they can see that um, what we're doing is good for for children and good for families and um my dad so okay i want to include this point which is that it really bothered my dad to imagine that i was keeping a corrupted version of his religion that was what bothered him is mm. because i told him i still believed in mormonism and that um i was just taking the religion he'd given me and following God within it and he couldn't wrap his mind around someone keeping such an ugly in his mind version of his religion but the moment he realized oh she has a different religion than me then he was totally fine with it and so I don't know how he finally came to that realization but um that was that was good so my parents is the most exciting like they fully accept us they come to many of our events um and and yet they're still very LDS too. Like they haven't changed their religion at all, but just our relationship with them has changed. That's probably the biggest um, difficult thing that has happened. I've of course lost friends and other family too, but um, I still like cross my fingers that my parents will someday like believe closer to what we believe, but we still have tons in common with them. And we just try to focus on our 
our similarities and not our differences. Um, Melissa, before I get to you, I just I want to point out a couple of things here. First off, I find what you said there, Charlotte, really inspiring, right? Because I think there's no guarantees that, that folks will come back around. All yeah. we can do is just hold to the convictions that we've been given and then put the rest in the Lord's hands and let him work on people. Yeah. Um, when it does work out, it's beautiful. The other thing I'd say is that it, sometimes we, we, we forget that when it comes to the LDS church, we still have more in common than we have differences. Right. And I think sometimes if we can, can position things to, to show what we're for and not necessarily what we're against, yeah. that can help smooth that over. Yeah. I have just one quick follow-up question for you, Charlotte, because okay. I think this is very applicable. You said as you were going through this, this dark period, as you're, you're going through this faith transition, kind of a yeah. crisis, you, you get to a point to where you're thinking about, well, maybe God doesn't exist. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, I did go through an atheist okay. phase. And, and I find this very timely and kind of important because I think a lot of folks are either going through this or they're about to go through this with all the upheaval in the LDS church. And so yeah. people are going to be faced with this, with this, this choice, because if you look at Mormons in general, they don't necessarily uh, become Baptists. Methodists or do anything Protestantism. And I think it's because the promises within Mormonism are so great that you're like, well, if I can't have that, why would I want to hang out on a cloud playing a harp all day? Right. What was it that ultimately got you from that as you're making that choice between, well, maybe God just doesn't exist at all to, okay, now we're just going to go right after the full enchilada, right? We're not going to we're not going to waste time with anything else. We're, we're, we're going for it. What yeah. was that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I'm actually glad you asked because, um, it was like, I was a little too, um, black and white, a little too scientific about things. And, uh, it was like either God exists in the version that I think he should, or there is no God at all. And, um, it was a lot of thinking and, honestly talking to Joshua that helped me to realize that well first of all I realized that I was really unhappy uh and to me that was kind of the fruit of atheism was like I, I wasn't happier I wasn't more productive I wasn't serving my family better and being a better mom any of those things it was like I was just depressed and angry and um you know just letting things that I used to care about just fall apart and stuff and and so I was like well how how could I choose this over what I had before? Because what I had before was sort of a blind faith. And yet it, it led me to make good decisions with who to marry and what to do with myself and um, how to, what to teach my kids and stuff. And so I thought what I had before was better than what I'm doing right now. And um, I also studied like history and there was one line, I don't think this was part of it, but um, since this had happened, I've, I've, heard Benjamin Schaefer say um, all theories are false some theories are useful and that kind of sums up um, what I'm going to try to describe now which is the realization that we have choice when it comes to what we believe belief and testimony isn't something that happens only to you although it can you can have an experience where it totally changes what you believe and and you had no control over that but 
on a day-to-day level, you can choose to believe something even if you can't intellectually defend it or explain it to someone else. And I realized that um, believing in God, number one, and number two, what that looked like, which for me is Mormonism, is a much better way to live life than just being an angry atheist. So there was one like three o'clock in the morning conversation with my good husband where I was just like desperate on this precipice. And I finally had this major like lightning bolt moment where I said, wait, so you're saying that I can choose to believe in Mormonism? It's not that I have to wait for God to come bear witness of it to me somehow. And Joshua said, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And it just shocked my system because I, I never thought of belief as a choice before. And so then I thought, well, choosing to believe in the best I have, and I, I think Mormonism does have problems. And so I guess that was where I was getting kind of hung up, but it was like, it's still the best. So it's like, um, if you look at scientific theories, you know, Col- Christopher Columbus believed that the earth was around. And there were astronomers that came later that taught that the earth revolves around the sun. And none of that is the complete picture, which is that not only is the earth round, not only does it revolve around the sun, but the sun isn't even the center of the universe. The sun is just a star in the middle of a galaxy in some far from corner of the universe. But you don't have to have the complete picture to have something useful, which is that the earth is round where before we thought it was flat. So I feel like Mormonism, it may be the exact version that I believe doesn't have every single detail about every single truth that there is, but it's way more useful than believing that the earth is flat, which is what the atheists metaphorically believe. So to me, um, my version of Mormonism is the most useful religion that I can find, and I'm open to further light and knowledge, but I'm way happier now than when I went through my atheist phase and I'm much just a better person to be around and stuff, I'm sure. So um, I guess that's what it comes down to is that you can choose to believe the thing that's most useful, even if it's not the complete truth. I got you. No, I think that's absolutely awesome. And I'm about to reveal just how flawed I am because I think I want to actually put that on a t-shirt that atheists are flat earthers. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> so um that would be a special melding what's that It'd be an interesting melding of genesis and atheism <laughs> that's right <laughs> so how about you uh, melissa oh boy so um i wasn't raised in utah i was raised in colorado mostly and some in new mexico so i didn't have a large community of lds to draw from in one area that we lived in we had to drive 40 miles to go to church and so we'd make a day of it. We'd drive our 40 miles of potluck casserole and we'd spend the rest of the day with the members from our branch. Good people, really good people. So that's what I grew up in. And then I went to BYU, graduated from BYU unmarried, which apparently is some cardinal sin. And then uh, over, and I'm going to give you the long story short, but I had two failed marriages and In 2011, my Relief Society president, she 
and her counselors decided that the goal for the Relief Society Sisters was going to be to pick scriptures and just read whatever you decided to read. There was no, there were no parameters. And so we got handed this little card in order to write down what we were going to read. And I was just going to get through them all. And I, I, I hadn't done that in a really long time because every time that I started to read the scriptures, it was like this warning bell would go off in my head because I couldn't match up what I was reading in the word and what was being taught to me from the pulpit. And so I just decided I'm going to read the scriptures no matter what. And at the time I was in a failing marriage. I was working through full time. I had three kids. Um, the only time I could come up with to read scriptures was when I milked the cow in the morning and on my 45 minute commute to work and back three days a week. So that's what I committed to. And I started the new Testament and I just, over the course, of the next about 10 months or a year, just buried myself in the scriptures every opportunity I had which wasn't much outside those two windows I uh, just buried myself in what did Christ actually say and started to unravel what I believed to be true because I've been taught it and what was actual truth and just began to tease that out and didn't even go into church history or anything like that I didn't have some of the things that other people are stymied with um, I know that one generation was never taught about plural marriage or the priesthood ban. And so that was a big shocker after they defended, you know, they've been confronted with the truth, defended the church and the falsehood, and then came back to the truth. I was taught from a young age, these things, um, because correlation began the year I was born. And so there were still a lot of older people in the church who had good uh, memories of being taught things that weren't correlated, being taught church history. And so when these, you know, things that are very terrifying and horrible to people pop up, that just hadn't affected me at all. And so the way I like to describe when someone who hasn't been taught these things, or it's been actively avoided, like the church educational system was notorious in hiding these things. And we find in the teachings of the presidents of the church in Brigham Young's book, it even says like, it just puts forth this idea that he was a monogamist. And it, and if you are able to, I mean, it's online. If you want to go on the church website and pull that and go through it, never does it mention that all the wives that he had or anything. So when people are confronted with this, I kind of equivalate it. And I've said this many times to getting a bad haircut. So when I was in college, I got a bad haircut. And I didn't know. And so I went home and I'm in the mirror and my roommate starts laughing and I'm like, what's going on? And she said, your hair, it's like four inches longer on one side than the other. And I'm like, what? So got another mirror. Yes, indeed. It's a total mess. And I don't, I don't have difficult to cut hair, but whatever. So I went back to the person who cut my hair and I said, you have, I need my money back. Like I no, I just need my money back. And she's like, well, I can't give you your money back, but I can fix your hair. And I'm like, um, you just butchered my hair. There's no way I'm going back to you to fix this. And I ended up leaving with no money and no haircut because she wouldn't budge and I wouldn't budge. And so that's what I think really happens to people that they're confronted with this truth in history 
and they have been lied to. Okay, that's that's real. They've been lied to, or it, I'll be really generous. It's been concealed from them, and they have gone so far as to defend the concealment, not knowing it's been concealed. And then the church kind of did a backpedal. It's like, oh well, we'll put the these. Um, you know, these items back on the website and then we can explain it all away. Why, you know, and there's never an accounting. There's never an accounting for all the decision-making that took place to keep that out of common knowledge. And at the same time, you know, we as members only have ourselves to blame for not digging these things out. I mean, the, the history is there. The scriptures are there. And personally, I was lazy for a lot of years in not searching out in the scriptures and in history, the truths. And, oh gosh, the truths, the truths are great and interesting and terrifying. And there's a huge paradigm shift that takes place. But, you know, I just want the truth. And I told the Lord that at one point, like, I just want the truth. I'm driving in my car, like really upset. I want the truth. And I was told, you can't handle the truth. Did it sound like Jack Nicholson? Tell yeah, me it sounded well, like it Jack Nicholson. It didn't sound like Jack Nicholson, but that's the impression that I got. So you can't handle the truth, right? And I was like, and I just, I kept persisting. I was like, well, why? Why won't you give me the truth? And I get told, well, you're too little. Like that exact phrase, like you're too little. And I, I'm not one to back down. And everybody that knows me knows I'm the person who's always trying to find the way around. And so I just said to him, well, then make me big. Like, I am not going to take no for an answer. I want the truth. I don't care what it takes to get there. And that's kind of evolved into, I want to be one of God's favorites. And everybody can be. That's the beauty. Everybody can be God's favorite. Yeah, that's awesome. There's also prices to pay. And, and just to kick back around, you know, I have children that are grown that I didn't, that didn't speak to me for two years. Oh, after they I'm left so home. sorry. And, and, but you know what? They're all back. I mean, they don't, aren't fundamentalists, but we have a good relationship. We have good conversations. There are people that I've had to leave behind and those are my parents, you know, they're, they're not involved in my life anymore. They are not grandparents to my boys. Um, you know, Charlotte's parents have, really risen to the occasion and they have just accepted them as their own grandchildren. And so, yeah. That's so awesome. I like what you said there about then make me big. Right. And, and I think what that shows is, is that there is you, when, when you're pursuing this, there's a certain amount of tenacity that you have to have, right. Where you have to be willing to be backed up against the wall and then just keep going, just keep, going through any wall you have to to get to get what it is you know it's kind of like dave i don't know this is an older generation thing but um if anybody's ever seen cool hand luke mm -hmm. there's a scene in there where he's in this fight with this very very big man and he is getting beaten to a pulp and he just keeps getting up and he stands there and he turns this big man he says you're gonna have to kill me right and everything just stops because they know that he will never, there's no quit. There's no quit in him. Right. Right. I, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I think we have to have that same tenacity when, when we go down this road. 
and understand there's going to be bumps along the way and setbacks and, and all the stuff that goes with it. But yeah, yeah. Tenacity is huge in this. Um, thank you for sharing that. I know those are sensitive things and I, I take for granted that sometimes because I have a different, a little bit different. I mean, my mom was a full fledged hippie, right? My, my old man passed away when I was 13. So I didn't have any of those things to lose. Um, and, and it's something I continually have to check myself with and understand, you know, you, you didn't have those same, same, uh, you didn't have much to lose in doing that. And I, I understand that that, that was pretty sensitive stuff. So I appreciate everyone, uh, sharing there. Andrea. From, yeah. Andrea. Oh, go ahead. What were you gonna say? I thought you were going to skip Andrea. No, no. Go on. Yeah. Nope. Andrea, real quick, you, you were pretty much raised in fundamentalism. So I'd like to talk for just a second, if you don't mind, about um, what it was like being raised in fundamentalism, right? Do you remember a point at which you looked back and went, you know what, my family doesn't look like others' families, or these people who say they're Mormons, they're they're a little bit different than me. What what are some of the unique things you can you can look back on now and go, yeah, that was unique as compared to most other folks. Um, gosh, that's kind of a hard question for me. I, apologize. I don't feel, I don't feel like, I don't feel like we were super unique. Okay. <laughs> um, but we did experience some interesting things within the AUB. We, my father was, um, interested in, what they called the united effort which was not quite a united order but they were more of um they were more of like a a group of men that wanted to talk about the gospel a lot and you know i was too young to understand everything that was going on um but they they did a lot of meetings together um just discussing the deeper doctrines of the gospel and um part of the part of the thing that i did experience was when my parents were transitioning from the church to the aub was that my my mother had a really hard time um she didn't let her family know and so she would tell us to not say anything or to not mm. to uh, talk about it around them. So I think I grew up a little bit scared about what people would think when I was growing up. So um, I'm not sure exactly <laughs> No, I think, no, no, no. I, I think you hit on something that is is really important to understand. And, and that is as fundamentalists, um, there are societal scars there, right? I mean, we look back at like the Short Creek Raids, those sorts yeah. of things, and those leave a, a deep scar. And what what your parents' generation had to do within fundamentalism just to preserve the truth, I think needs to be commended greatly. 
because I'm I'm what I'm doing here right now. What we're all doing here right now is kind of an outgrowth. We're, we're standing on their shoulders a little bit, right? They kept it alive. So those things could be passed on. And we've now entered in a, a time both for better and for worse, right? Where, where anything goes, so to speak, but this allows us now to have these conversations. Um, also, I, I think what you said about, you know, having to be a little quiet about it. I think that's a very unique perspective that, that a lot of kids aren't raised with. And, um, I, I think that that deserves to be recognized and valued for, for what it is. Yeah. So. I, I think I lost you a little bit there. <laughs> Our internet's not the greatest. So. <laughs> oh, oh, I, w I was just saying that, that, um, what you'd said about, um, having to hide a little bit, you know, I, I think yeah. that's a very, very unique perspective because there's some, some societal scars there as far as fundamentalism because of the short Creek raids and whatnot. But yeah. Um, within the AUB, it was definitely something that they were afraid of was letting people, just anyone know who they were. Um, if people had questions, you know, it was highly screened, I think, because um, because they were afraid and paranoid of something happening again that happened right. before, which was the 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 many of the men even within um, like uh, many of the men they they went to prison for the principal and I know that there were a lot of women especially within the AUB the older women who remembered and um so yeah I I guess there was it was just um we were brought up having to be kind of quiet because, and also, like, I had friends that were polygamous children, because I wasn't, I wasn't raised polygamist, but I had friends that were polygamous children that, um, you know, people looked down on them, and mm -hmm. they, they treated them badly, and so there, there was actually a lot of things like that especially I would say especially in the 70s 80s where I grew up you know gotcha gotcha well that's awesome I I appreciate everybody sharing here so Dave I want to bring that up a little bit as far as you know the fear our family hasn't really been touched by that very much when I joined the family you know it was a felony um, and then with the Brown Utah case that went before, it became illegal for a period of time. And so about nine months, I guess it was about six months after I joined the family. And then about nine months after I joined the family, um, my parents decided that they weren't going to bring my kids home from spring break. Oh. Um, and so it was this, this window you know, where it was illegal. And so when they called the police on me and when they called DCFS, nothing was done. But, um, 
And I had already been dealing with DCFS because I have this ex-husband who used to call on the regular. So when the police showed up at my door, I was like, yay, come on in. <laughs> you know, do you want a snack? But I didn't have that um, very real, very based fear of the authorities coming into my home. And part of that was because, again, I'd already been dealing with some of that with a prior husband, but also because I had no reference point for mm-hmm. that with family and uh, children being taken from their mothers and also because it was illegal. And I think that that would have been handled very, very differently if I'd had that familial scarring and that generational scarring. And I think a lot of grace has to be given to people who are leaving sex and they are, you know, realizing that they're going to be okay yeah and they don't have to hide and they don't have to conceal their background and they don't have to conceal the parentage of their children and all of these things yeah yeah no i i agree with you i you know and and that's something that took me once i really dove into fundamentalism uh and and started talking to people that's something i realized in in pretty short order was is that those societal scars are still there right especially especially for those spiritual giants whose shoulders we stand on today they they paid the price um in, in a way that i'm so glad i haven't also i'm glad i was born in this day and age because i'm way too blunt to not keep something quiet like when when tanya came into the family uh <laughs> The ward I used to attend, the the bishop lives across the street, and uh, he came over. He's like, so how you been doing? I'm like, I'm good. And he's like, uh, what's going on over there? And I just went, nothing your ancestors wouldn't have been proud of, <laughs> and then just kind of walked away. <laughs> but I, so my point is, is we don't have to deal with that, right? And and so I think I think we kind of owe it to those folks in a little bit to to be out there a little more. Right. And, and I think that that speaks volumes that, that you guys have agreed to come on. So, all right. So for those who don't belong to a group and, and I actually do want to hear from, from Anne and Teresa on this as well, but for, for independence. So Melissa and Andrea and Charlotte, how do you guys manage to like foster sisterhood outside the family? Right. Because within the LDS church, you, you have Relief Society, and realistically, that's where 90% of the work gets done in the LDS church. And, you know, I, I only say 90 and not 99 because I'm trying to be nice to the guys, but that's really the truth, right? How, how, do, you, how do you guys uh, foster that kind of sisterhood outside of a group? Well, um on facebook i i admin for the mormon fundamentalism um what is it the mormon fundamentalist relief society okay and then we also have i also admin for the mormon fundamentalist relief society um fellowship hall and um those are more specific to like-minded women and then i also i also have a like a 
I'm an admin for um, the principal and education, which um, is basically for women who have questions more about the principal and, you know, polygamy. And I find that a lot of them still are interested in the religious aspect, but um, they're just fascinated by Browns. <laughs> <laughs> in a lot of ways because <laughs> because you know that's like the big news in especially in these days and um and then I also have friendships with women that are like-minded um some people in Missouri that I am that I have association with um and you know, it, it has been lonely where I am. It's been, it's been very lonely. So, um, I have missed having that weekly thing sometimes, but at the same time, I also know that I also know that, um, I think I have a different, maybe a different, uh, I'm trying to think of the word. Um, I think Heavenly Father has something for me and I'm not sure what, but it, it, I haven't felt to go back to any group or join any group since then. Um, I've been very blessed in in the blessings that I have received and um no I I know I have a I have my own mission mm -hmm. you know so That's awesome. Uh Charlotte and Melissa do you guys want to take a stab at that too? Okay. Um, you know, I, oh gosh, this is where I like show myself. So when I became a single mom, I no longer met criteria to be a good member of the church essentially and was treated as such, which, you know, I was, I was pretty bad to women who were divorced in the church. There's, there is a stigma maybe less so, but now, but, um, at the time I just kind of kept my mouth shut and my head down because what could I possibly contribute as someone who had a failed marriage? So I was single for eight and a half years and then I married someone who was less active. And so my kids, you know, and I, we just, we just weren't really acceptable or accepted, which was fine. I mean, just like, I just had less skin in the game. And then I also am a nurse. And so I worked every other weekend. So I, I took some heat for that until someone had a grandchild get born on my unit. So gotcha. <laughs> then suddenly it was, oh, we're so glad you're at work on Sunday. <laughs> so, um, so for me, it it's been a loss to some degree as far as you know, the niceties and the neighbors um, being in a group, but 
you know, we have a fellowship that runs about twice a month. And then we also, you know, keep the feast. And so we kind of try to bring people to us more than anything. And then otherwise it's Facebook and Marco Polo. And I, what are you doing to, other than our stuff? To... Well, fellowship brings a lot of people to our house. We have fellowship um, every other Sunday and we have monthly and annual events as well. And so um, the, the phase I'm in right now is I'm, I've got all these kids needing me and they need a social life too. So I focus on the whole family stuff. And so we'll have fellowship and whole families come to that. And I'm excited when there are children that come that are my kids' age. So they have someone to hang out with. And then after our meetings, we have potluck and people stay sometimes for hours. And that, so that's, I guess, when I get my fill of like talking to other women and stuff. But I also have a few friends and my mom that I talk to on the phone or on Marco Polo to socialize that way. Um, so maybe in another phase, I'll want to do something else. A few years ago, actually, Melissa and I started a group called Utah United Sister Wives. Um, we started that on Facebook. The purpose of that was to get together women who were um, currently sister wives or past or future, um, like people who were interested in practicing for marriage to hang out. And so we used to host monthly yeah. events, I think, that it was just for the women. I think maybe we had one whole family event, but usually it was just the women. Um, and maybe we'll do that again sometime. Right now we're kind of busy with our tiny kids, you know, and so we haven't done that for a while, but sometimes someone from that group will reach out and say, hey, you guys should plan something yeah. again. So I don't know, maybe we should, but the we try to focus on the fellowship, I guess, with like whole family stuff. And um, nobody's really felt moved upon to do something mm -hmm. just for the women. Right. And I'm old and I have tiny kids. So, oh, the sleep is so good. <laughs> I got you. I, I, I understand that. And uh, Teresa, what does Relief Society look like in the branch? So Anne wanted me to start with this one. So okay. I'll start on this one. So um, so we have meetings every every Sunday. Of course, there's an array of meetings that range from something spiritual to uh, something that you might be learning. Um, so, but I'll explain that. Well, okay. Um, for example, a few years back, I talked about how I love herbs and I really get into herbs and everything like that. I did, I put together books that were called natural home remedies. And so I would talk about, uh, I put together a whole section on colds and flus. I put together a whole section on stomach flus. I put a whole section okay. together on yeast and fungus and, and just all, all these different problems that you, you could come up with and, hope and try to treat them yourself without having to go to a doctor if you weren't able to go to a doctor so we wanted to be able to have these things on hand because um, i can't tell you before i did that okay even since i've done that i get calls all the time hey i got this going on i got this 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 and this people i get a lot of personal information from people <laughs> 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 okay i got it so 
we did that. That was one of the classes. I did that every month and we were putting, and we're talking about fairly large volumes of books that I put together for that class. So again, they have other, other things too that other people do. So um, sometimes they do different nights, nightly things, um, other days of the week. And Anne's going to talk about that. Um, Saturdays, we, Charlotte and Melissa have been here, so they'll know. We do work parties and you know, you've been mm -hmm. here. Yep. So we do work parties every Saturday. And so every Saturday, a uh, work party consists of, for the most part, men and women, Sometimes they're combined. Sometimes the women will help the men. Sometimes the men will help the women, um, especially during gardening season. It's definitely mixed up there and we, we still have a variety of people. Today's Saturday. I've been over here at our church building since 645 this morning. I made breakfast for everybody, which probably was about at least 60 people, wow. you know, that came to the work party. And so we had breakfast and then immediately following the work party, um, we all break up into what our different, you know, things are. The men went to what they were doing. Um, I run the women's side of it. So I get everybody lined up on the women's side of it and what they're doing. So today we had, we were making French bread today. So we made French bread. Uh, we'll have a couple of other girls that'll come in and get lunch ready. So that lunch is ready and we can eat at the, there during that time. And let's see, uh, there was about four of us. We were getting stuff ready for the freeze dryers, getting them all clean, get things loaded into going to that. Sometimes we're running dehydrators, canning, sometimes we work in greenhouses, a variety of things that we do as a relief society and as a whole church, you know? So we're, we have meeting on Sunday, we're together every Saturday and Anne's going to talk about some of the other stuff that we do. Did I get everything? You, you got, you did good, but what you're going to talk about now. So <laughs> I have other things. See, so, you know, we have, <laughs> I, I was a Relief Society teacher here for years. I don't know, at least 10, maybe longer. And, you know, our Relief Society is on Sundays. We have lessons. There's a spiritual lesson. There's a lesson on, on church history there's lessons on things that are fun like you know Teresa also did like we did teas uh, we've made easy you know pour soap um, for Relief Society we've also made some candies around the holidays to teach kids you know young women and and the us older women how to have fun making candies for the holidays Different as times. a Relief Society thing so that was a lot of fun, but we also do like enrichments, like she said, homemaking, depending on where you are in life, how you might know that um, phrase, but we do things like a couple weeks ago, um, we did a Friday night where we made um, homemade goat soap and taught everybody how to make soap from scratch. And that was a lot of fun. We've done some other things, you know, with quilting and stuff. And, you know, I, I've had a calling, Teresa and I were in the primary for a, gosh, a couple of years anyway, um, back when we first moved out to this area. And, you know, we did a bunch of activities that way as well. And so for us, you know, there's a lot of different types of ways that we can socialize here because we have a group of people that, that are here. I know, David, where you're going to church, you know, you guys have some activities and stuff there that you can associate with 
not just like a potluck on Sunday, but you're going to start doing some other things. And, and so that's another way that, you know, people in Utah can socialize their members of our church as well. Um, you know, we have Thursday evenings, we do what we call a missionary class and, you know, we have young men's and young women's and we have primary activities that happen once a week. Um, you know, and then we have our regular Sunday meetings, just like the LDS church does. So there's a lot of commonality there between the Salt Lake LDS church, you know, and, and our own when it comes to meetings. One of the reasons why it was so easy for me to join Christ Church, the branch was because of these common, you know, structures that we have and, and our common beliefs. That's what made it me go, you know, okay, I think, you know, this is where I need to move to and transition in my faith um, process and, and growing. And I've learned so much, you know, but one of the things I had mentioned earlier was that, you know, I had a hard time when my family kind of ostracized me um, <clears throat> and the members here have really become my family. That's you awesome. know, I mean, we, we socialize and do a lot of fun activities together and, you know, we have a really good time. And I know that being gathered here, you know, we have somebody that we can count on, that we can lean on, we can get some help. I can call Teresa and say, hey, you know, my grandson has this rash and I have somebody to talk to about it. You know, I don't have to run off somewhere. And so having just somebody to talk to, friends to hang out with has been a lot of fun. That's awesome. Now, nobody mentioned any of the cutesy signs I know Relief Society made a ton during the 90s. You know, the ones that would come with like the the scriptures attached to them and, yeah. and all that. So. I want but one. We that's... Take that for granted. That's just an automatic. That's yeah. just an automatic. Right. I was I was teasing Amber and Tanya here a couple of days ago. I want one that says the Sanders family. We put the fun in fundamentalism, but uh, they, they haven't they haven't quite got to that point yet. But uh, awesome. Thanks for sharing that. So as as women within fundamentalism, do you guys? find yourselves having to kind of like push back against stereotypes a, a lot? Yes. 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 I'll continue on. Um, you know, there is a lot of stereotypical stuff. You know, I mean, we're not all wearing prairie dresses. We're not mm -hmm. all have the same hairdos. And, you know, one of the things that one of my cousins said was that she, she said, you know, I, I really couldn't live fundamentalism because I don't want my hair in braids all the time. And I'm like, braids aren't just for fundamentalists, you know? And so, you know, it's just, it's funny with some of these things, you know, or like someone had, I'd met somebody online and they had in one of Andrea's groups that she manages on Facebook and they had sent me a message and, and they said, you know, do you have to wear a dress all the time? And I said, there are some people that want to wear dresses all the time. And then there are people like me who are more comfortable in jeans, you know, I mean, it's, it's your personal choice. And, um, you know, but there are a lot of those stereotypes where it's like, they think that we're probably all following, you know, someone similar to Warren's Jeff's and all the women are oppressed and that none of us have opinions. And, you know, I told Craig Foster, who's an author of a book um, on polygamy or a couple of them. And, and I told him, I said, you know, it's interesting how there's these stereotypes about fundamentalist women and we all are just, you know, being, 
told what to do all the time and and our husbands are in charge of us and we can't think for ourselves and i said and i honestly haven't been a fundamentalist woman that fits that stereotypical mold yet we all have our own brains we all have our own opinions a lot of us have very prominent careers and education even if we decide to stay home with our families we have interests and you know a lot of times i mean in our family you know dan gets left at home a lot so he he does he's home there well now with the you know dogs and everybody else is out doing something and having fun so you know it's it's breaking down some of these when people meet us you know and there's rumors out where we live and people you know it's funny nobody wants to like totally confront you and bring it up and ask you direct questions and probably because they don't want to hear the answer really but you know, they will say things like, oh, yeah, you know, there was it was interesting because the FLDS actually have a couple companies and they got a contract in our town and they were redoing some water pipes. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there were some women here that dressed like them and stuff. And, you know, we were always really nice to them and helped them out or talked to them and tried to say hi when they were around. But then after they all left, you know, after that three months when they were fixing the water supplies, rumors are going around and they come up to me at work and they'd be like, Anne, have you seen any of those prayer dress women that walk around at night? You could only see them at night at out night. in your neighborhood. I'm pretty sure that that's where they were from. And it's like, you know, we, we need to talk about some of these things because all of these fun rumors and these stereotypes aren't necessarily true. And that you can't pick me out of a crowd, you know, on a regular day in Vegas or Reno or anywhere else that I might show up and tell me that I'm a fundamentalist because of the way my hair is done or the clothes that I wear or the speech that I use. You can't tell me any different from whether you're a Mormon in the LDS church from Salt Lake, or if you're just a Christian and it's, it's all about how we treat people. I think that's the best thing that's going to help people not be afraid to talk to us about the decisions that we made about the religion that we live. It's, it's in being kind and respectful and, and honoring that people have choices that they want to make in their life. And, you know, I just, I'm really grateful that I have this opportunity to share some of that, you know, here and to go online and talk to people and to bust some of these down because we're not who everybody thinks we are. Right. Absolutely. Well, you said you have anything yeah. you wanted? Yeah, to actually. So actually when I joined Christ Church, um, probably the biggest stereotype at the time was I was browbeaten. You know, you know, of course, my husband had to browbeat me to to join this religion, you know, and, you know, and I had to put a stop to that. I said, no, actually, I didn't browbeat him, but he by far didn't browbeat me. I remember one Sunday, you know, we had been studying and studying and going to church every Sunday. And one Sunday he was taking a nap and I just couldn't go to sleep. And so finally I went down and. I sat on the bed by him and kind of woke him up. And I said, I'm feeling like a fence sitter here. I'm feeling like we need to make a choice, you know? And I'm the one who pushed that choice, not him, not him by any stretch of the imagination. Fast forward 
how many years later. And I'm going to apologize now because I might cry. I'm no longer married. He's gone with what was my best friend. But they made that choice and I chose not to go with them because I felt that the truth was here and this was where I needed to be and that they weren't following truth. So, but by the stereotypes that were given in the world, I wouldn't have even had that opportunity to make that choice to stay here. Right. Right. But I did. And I'm here today. And another stereotype is that you have to be married. I'm not married still. He left in 2016 was our divorce. I still to this day, I'm not married. And, you know, I I've spoken to the priesthood and, and I, and I've told them, I, I, I don't want to be bad by not getting married, but I'm damaged and I feel like I need to give me some time before I do that, you know, and I am 100% in the right. And they said, absolutely. You need to fix yourself, you know? Right. So again, <laughs> Maybe, maybe not fix yourself, but just spend some time with you, right? But, right. You know what I mean? And I don't think fix yeah. yourself. I mean, you know, yeah. You need to work on you. Work on you. Right. And, uh, but again, by the world standards, how many single women are you going to see in a fundamentalist group? Right. Right. And, yeah. and that's accepted and giving given responsibility and that can voice her own opinions and share her her life and i've actually asked opinions from the members of the priesthood about many things right and i I feel like i i have an opinion and i feel like my opinion matters it's awesome yeah thanks for sharing that Teresa. i know that was kind of tough um andrea do you want to take a stab at this before we uh move on to charlotte and melissa again Sorry, I had to unmute. You're just (laughs) fine. You're just fine. Don't sweat that a bit. Yeah, technical difficulties. (laughs) Um, So I definitely agree with Anne. I think that fundamentalist women are some of the most outspoken women that you can ever meet. They have very strong opinions. They are extremely um, firm in their thoughts, generally speaking. I I think that uh, they usually have a lot of strong opinions about a lot of topics and a lot of um, principles of the gospel. And I, I think that people really do not understand um, I, I think they don't understand how, how much study and time women put into learning about the gospel. Um, 
and uh, like, I mean, even before I was married, I was opinionated. <laughs> and I told my husband, I told my husband, I wouldn't marry him if he didn't, if he did not um, live plural marriage. And it wasn't because of my parents that I had that opinion. It was because I knew that that was what I wanted and that what that was what God wanted for me. And um, so, I, you know, I, I just feel like so many people really don't understand how much how much thought and time goes in into what we believe right no i think that's a, a very valid point i i i appreciate you sharing that that cuz especially the part about plural marriage right because i think there's this misconception of well you're you're born into it or you convert to it and you just have to submit Right. It's kind of the way it was. And, and the way you put that, I think was beautiful is that it, it was, it was important to you. That principle was important yeah. to you as I'm sure all the, the principles of the restored gospel are. So that, that was awesome. I appreciate that. Charlotte, Melissa. Yeah. Uh, there's some stereotypes that I like to uh, buck against, I guess. One of them though, actually this is funny because I was very slow to reject this stereotype. This is actually about men, not women, but um, you guys all know the name Joe Darger, I bet. He's a somewhat famous polygamous man who has three wives who lives in Salt Lake City area. And uh, when I first, I was, I was already a polygamist and I heard about this guy who had three wives and my gut reaction was, what a creep to have three wives and then I had to like why did I why was that my initial reaction to that like I don't know anything about him besides that and what I what I realized and actually wrote an essay about put on my blog is that it's it's actually the other way around it's like for three women who are independent educated smart beautiful and have choice in the matter for three women to each individually choose him as a husband, of course, he's not going to be a creep. They're not going to choose a creep. For a man to sustain three marriages with women who have choice in the matter, which is all the fun, you know, all the fundamentalist women that I know, then it actually, it actually should be the other way around. I should hear that. And my initial reaction should be, wow, he must be a really good husband. He must be a really good guy for that many women to want to marry him and to stay married to him. So, so that is one stereotype that even I had to like fix in myself is like, you know, in like some situations, there's no um, agency, I guess. Right. But, but for the, for the people I hang out with, it's, it's just the other way around. And um, I used to be shy about being a polygamist for that same reason, because I thought, when someone finds out that I'm a plural wife, they're going to think certain things about me. And there was actually one instance I remember um, the very first time I met, sorry, someone's knocking on the door. No, I don't know which little kid that is, but um, 
the first time I met someone and that had this experience, I'll just tell you. So um, we went to uh, an event at the, do you guys call it, what do you guys call the church that's like in Santa Quin area or Elk Ridge or whatever? Um, the, the Peterson group. Has the branch? A, yeah, but sorry, the, like where the missionaries live. What's that building? Where the mission? Where the mission? Yeah. In Spanish Fork? Yeah, like Spanish Fork area, yeah. Um, that's. I, do Is they have a name, name for it? I don't know if they have a name for it. Oh, well, the missionaries the mission have house? a name for it. Maybe the mission, mission house? That, the mission house? We went to an event at the mission house. Oh. I'll call it that. And uh, and so there were a lot of, like, Peterson people and also independents there. And uh, I introduced myself to a woman and pointed across the room and said, and that's my sister wife. And she was an only wife. And she said, oh, you have a sister wife. Oh, that's wonderful. I wish I had a sister wife. Oh, I hope someday I get to have a sister wife. And I was like, oh, yeah, I do have a sister wife. I should be like, proud of that. And that was like a turning point for me to like go from being kind of shy and embarrassed about it to being like, and I have a sister wife. Like, I like, am a mature enough person that I can maintain like a relationship and share my husband and stuff. So that was like stuff I had to fix in my own in my own brain about it but one of them is just that women like oh no they definitely have choice for the most part and even in like the Warren Jeffs situation that's like parents imposing things on their 12 year old girls like the priesthood probably doesn't have as much power as as the parents the parents do but I'm not going to really speak to that I'm not an authority on that but like Melissa and I definitely have choice in who we're married to and whether we stick around and and stuff. And like even Brigham Young would teach that like women they can leave their marriages anytime they want to. And that like puts a ton of pressure on the husband to give the women reasons to stay with them. Uh it, there's no compulsion in it. Uh and in some cases even like there's no guilt about it cuz it's like um, I could leave Joshua and I wouldn't even leave him alone. You know, he could just go right on with the wife that he would keep if I were to leave him. And so I, I don't know. I feel like I used to think there, there was no choice in it. And now I realize it's quite the other way around. There's like lots of choices in it for women. And um, the other one that I wanted to speak to is the stereotype that, that we're uneducated. Um, I, love keeping like keeping my cards close to my chest and then like revealing at some point the fact that Joshua and Melissa and I are all college educated between the three of us I think we have six degrees including two graduate degrees so um so that's always fun because we surprise people that's like not what they're expecting you know so we break the mold that way I guess although we weren't raised fundamentalist so maybe that's part of it but uh yeah, I guess there are. I hope I answered the question about you did. You did. Yep, Melissa, how about you? Oh yeah. So, gosh, it's easy to fly under the radar, but I had a tipping point with that, and that's when I had a child, and then Charlotte had a child, and then I had another child, and so it used to be that I could like at work say, "Oh, these are my bonus kids," and nobody ever had any questions. Uh, except unless I wanted to reveal, you know, that we were like they just assume they were they just assume their step because yeah. a lot of step families refer to the children of the former wife as um, 
as bonus kids. And so, but that kind of got fouled up, right? So then I was like, oh, crud, what do I, what do I say? And I've really come to this place of just like, and I think it's because we've lost so many friends and so much family that I really need to know right away, hey, are you a keeper or not? And so I often will lead with, we're a multiple wife family. And there's that moment, like they're, they've got to grind some gears with that because it's not, I'm, I haven't said we're polygamous, you know, et cetera, et cetera, but they've got, they kind of got to go a long way around the world with that. And, and I know very quickly, are they going to be somebody that's, you know, supportive or not? And they don't need to be supportive or not. They just, I just need to know if I want to keep them around or not. And so I think that's part of it. I do find um, having been married before that in monogamy, especially within the church, it's like you stick with that marriage no matter what, you know, you're going to, you know, you make these comments, you're going to stay no matter what, no matter what. And then at the same time with plural families, it seems like when I come to, you know, things in society, they're very, very eager to like kind of pick at things and be like, hey, you know, looking for reasons why I should leave or why, you know, this family should be divided up. And that's very strange to me, um, especially since like I stayed in a first monogamous marriage far longer than I would counsel myself to stay, you know, looking back, you know, gosh, it's been what, 23 years ago. And so that's been very interesting, the stereotype that I need to be rescued, that I'm brainwashed, uh, that I'm not very smart, and that I'm weak-willed. I like that one a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the weak-willed part. Hmm. I, I don't think people realize the burdens that plural husbands are under. I mean, my poor husband, I have this pending blog post I haven't published yet, but there was one weekend when I was doing... Uh, shortly after with my three-year-old and the poor man was replacing two dishwashers and two microwaves that weekend and and it became quite the project because so whoever had done the microwaves before they'd done wiring weird and whole nine yards and so and I just remember feeling this immense amount of pity for this man <laughs> as he was struggling to install these appliances and I, I don't think people realize like they want to cast plural husbands as those creepy guys and they don't realize that it is an immense amount of work and care to take care of strong-willed independent women uh, who at any point in time can get together and say we've decided against them. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I think that there's not enough really uh, respect given to those men they're just treated as as overlords and men who you know want to own women essentially right a couple things there one is is, uh you're right about brigham young uh i i read an interesting book years and years and years ago before i was ever a fundamentalist about brigham and his tenure as president of the lds church And typically, if a woman came and told Brigham, hey, I I need a divorce, this is not working out, Brigham's like, done, you're good. 
if you were a dude and went and asked for a divorce, he's like, suck it up, buttercup, right? Go be a better husband. So yeah, he was, he was absolutely that way. As I've heard all of you talk, I'm going to reveal just how simple and unsophisticated I am here. There's two movies I watch once a month religiously. One is Tombstone and the other is uh, 300 about the Spartans. And when, when uh, the Persians send in the emissary to talk to King Leonidas, they say, we're going to ravage your land. We're going to, to, you know, set, fire to your crops and burn down your cities and we're going to subjugate your women and leonidas goes you don't clearly don't know our women right and and as as i've talked with with everybody here that's definitely the sense is that when i get that stereotype thrown at me which happens quite frequently because of the podcast right i'm like clearly you've never met any of these women right? <laughs> these are not timid people these are these are strong independent people so thanks I mean, for that i think the question too is just there's this idea that we're brainwashed and that's stupid etc and when then confronted with that idea i real like the thing that i fight against the most is myself and saying something along the lines of oh yeah well fight me and so so that i, I don't it. like that's what i fight against is my own commentary <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, the other misconception I think is out there, and I don't I don't know if it's a misconception, and and I really want to get everybody's opinion here on this is that as women in fundamentalism, misogyny has just run amok. Right, that every every guy in fundamentalist is a misogynist, or he's overbearing or or whatever um has that been your case have you found that as you've socialized with other fundamentalists or or whatever that that there's more misogyny there than say anywhere else is it a problem that's exacerbated within fundamentalism how's that well let me jump in real quick so i find it it's i find that it's um depends on who you're talking to what group you know and so you know i think there's people out there that mean well in their mind and they're trying to help women have more rights and to be able to express themselves and they start saying that you know we've been marginalized especially those of us who are in alternate lifestyles meaning not one man and one woman and I, I mean, I haven't ran into a lot of it directed like at me personally, but I think that overall in the past, there have been some people in fundamentalism where the women have had prejudice against them. But if you look at it historically, and I know that you like history stuff. And so if you look at it historically, you know, has it changed in the last few years? I think it has. In my opinion, I think it's gotten um, better. But historically, you know, go back to Brigham Young's time. We were just talking about him. Historically, women in the world were treated in one way, but yet the women that were in Utah were 
had more rights. Um, they were more educated. They had more responsibilities within the community. Um, and they weren't looked down upon as women were back East or even in the South. And I think over time, some of these perceptions have changed towards women and have improved. But I also think that even current day, and, you know, I, I hate to bring up, you know, more spotlighting for the Browns, but but they, you know, there's a lot of talk out there about what's happening to their family. And I mean, I think it's a very sad situation for everyone in that family, um, what they're going through. But a lot of people in our world today that are not fundamentalists or even Mormon um, have put a lot of prejudices against the women. And, you know, we, us women individually, we choose what we can put up with or what we can't put up with. You know, my daughter, my own daughter, I, I've raised several children, but I only was able to birth one. And she has told me often, um, you know, mom, I think dad abused you and me and the kids. And I don't think that was a good situation. And I'm really glad that you left him. And I, I struggle though, that you've went into fundamentalism because traditionally, there has been a lot of abuse brought out and pointed out in society with that. Then you fast forward um, 20 years later and the same daughter says, you know, mom, the people that I've seen that you're around in fundamentalism don't seem to have the same prejudices against women. And that, you know, I really think that women have a voice and, can accomplish great things in your circles. And I feel bad that you get such bad press. And so, I, like I said, I think it depends on where it's coming from. But I do think that there are some men in traditional, typical society. And I'm, yeah, I had a little tonal in, you know, inflection there, but I think there are some that still do have a lot of prejudice against women. I think that there's other women that have prejudice against women. And it's, it's something that we all have to kind of overcome. And I think that some groups of women, you know, are probably more marginalized and oppressed and um, have more prejudice against them than other women do. But overall, I think that society as a whole has come a lot farther and that we're able to stand up and say, no, we have a voice and we can do things too. Right. Teresa, did you want to touch on that at all? So, yeah, I mean, I guess my biggest thing is, <clears throat> let's see how to put this in words. Um, so as a group, you know, we have different uh, segments out there, fundamentalist segments out there. Obviously, there's independents and there's segments, but it seems, seems to be that they function, the stereotypes are functioned, we're all one group. Independence, Christ Church, AUB, we're all one group. We're all just the fundamentalist group. That's the perception of the world, per se, you know, but we're not, you know, and it's kind of like, to me, it's like, you know, giving the entire Catholic Church a bad rap because of something a priest did, you know, 
are there men out there who do things that they're not supposed to do? Absolutely. Are there women out there who do things they're not supposed to do? Absolutely. But these are individual people. These are individual people. And that's what I feel like the world needs to look at is the people as an individual and not as a group of this is what they believe. And so this makes them this type of a person. Okay. No, that, so. that makes sense. That's well put. Yep. So, Andrea, how about you? How, do you find that, that in, in the circles you've been in, whether the AUB or as an, in, as an independent, excuse me, you've, you've been forced to contend with more misogyny than like if you were just in the LDS church or, or work or whatever? No, I like, I, I just feel like, um, actually fundamentalist women have so much more, um, voice than what people give them credit for. And I think misogyny is everywhere. I don't think it's just a group or it's out there in the world you know but and I like yeah I I don't really like to bring up the Browns but I feel like that there's some issues there you know but I don't think that's typical I think that's very um it's not it's not typical for um most fundamentalists um anywhere that that at least not in the crowds that I've seen in the circles I've been in um I've I definitely feel like women are revered that there's a lot that women have to say and often what we say is just as important as anyone else mm -hmm. you know it's it's not it's not um less than because we're women right no that's that's awesome thanks for sharing that um melissa charlotte did you guys want to take a stab at that too um you know one of the nice things about being independent is i'm only accountable to my husband and god and there's no layer in there mm -hmm. trying to you know put me in a box. I also think about the fact that we live in a culture right now that everybody wants to be the victim. Mm. And you can only be a victim if you're willing to participate in being a victim. Mm. So I ran into this when I was married to my first husband that you know people are like, oh, you're a victim of all this abuse, et cetera, et cetera. And I realized at one point, wait, I get up every day. I got up every day and I volunteered for that. Like I, I could have not done that. And, and that's in varying degrees from my own behaviors, the behaviors from him that I would accept to the point of walking out the door. Like there's a lot, a wide range of what we're willing to put up with. And I don't, I mean, if someone's truly in a victimized situation, as far as they're being abused, you always still have a choice to leave. And you always still have a choice to not play the game. And so, I don't know. I just, I really don't like that we're in this society of, I want to play the victim card. 
No, I agree with you. So um, my experience, I haven't, I haven't seen any more misogyny and fundamentalism than in, you know, the LDS world I grew up in at all. In fact, um, when I've read like talks from early Mormonism, I found quite the opposite, at least in the talks, although I wasn't part of the culture. But um, when I when I learned that Utah was the first state in which women voted, I wasn't surprised by that because I had learned about women being encouraged to go to medical school and um, things like that under the care of the early leaders in Utah. So um, I, I haven't seen that historically and I haven't experienced any of it either. Um, but to be fair, I didn't really experience tons of misogyny before I was a fundamentalist either. I, in fact, I think I'm the, I'm the recipient of you know the women who came before me and fought against that kind of thing because um, I should just be grateful to them. But I was in, um, I was interested in things that tended to be dominated by males a lot. So like my degrees are in mathematics. Um, I played the trumpet in the band. So I was usually the only girl in the, in the section and stuff. And it never, it never really mattered. It was like, um, if I was good at it, I was good at it. It didn't, it didn't matter that I was a girl. And um, my experience in fundamentalism is that men tend to really cherish their women and um and treat them with with even more care and love i mean i've heard stories to the exception but um the men that i know our neighbors and and uh, friends they all uh really take care of their wives and actually i would say it's become the opposite problem where men aren't treated that well and I don't know what the history of that is but I have witnessed women disrespecting their men um speaking badly against men hating um me the things that men have as strengths I've seen that way more than I've seen than I've seen misogyny and and that makes me sad because we have four boys and we're gonna we're raising them in a world that does not value the the strengths that men bring to the table, and that that's unfortunate. Uh, but just to, in one word, no, I haven't experienced more misogyny. That's awesome. You know, I think I think when we deal with stuff like misogyny or things like that, I think we have to look at it as a people problem and not a, a group specific problem, right? There's some people who are fantastic, and then there's some that just flat out suck, right? And okay. and you you you're gonna encounter them whether you're an independent, whether you're in a group, whether you're in the LDS church, whether you are a fundamentalist. It's just what it is, and I, I don't think there's there's any way of getting around that. Yeah. It just kind of is. Um, and and I agree with Charlotte as well. There doesn't seem to be a lot of it floating around in history. Now, are there isolated instances? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure because some people just suck, right? But if it like my favorite is Martha Hughes Cannon. Have you heard her story? Martha Hughes Cannon is married to a 70 apostle in the early days of Utah. And she decides she wants to run for elected office. And she wins, but she beats her own husband to do it. She ran against her husband. And, and so I'm like, 
that's pretty bold, especially for the 1800s, right? I mean, that I can't imagine that happening in Boston or New York or Philadelphia or take any of those major metropolitan areas. And Brigham did send, make sure that a lot of women had the opportunity to go back east and be become educated. And I, I think that that's something that doesn't get enough run either from our history. Uh, did anyone else want to add anything to that before I move on? I I thought I saw Melissa kind of perk up there for a second. Oh, yeah, just, I see, I mean, if you look, to dovetail with Charlotte, if you look at any Facebook, you know, feed, you're going to see a lot of male hatred, and a lot of it is, you know, from wives, there's a lot of belittlement, and I don't know. I'm fr I am frustrated too. I have two grown sons that are, you know, tall white men. And so they, they have run into quite a bit of um, societally poor treatment. Sure. Yeah, no, definitely. I can, uh, I, yeah, I get that. Absolutely. All right. So for this next question, the LDS church right now is facing some pretty important questions. Um, concerning the role of women in the church. Now, the two topics that come to mind immediately are women officiating or uh, to some degree even holding the priesthood. And the second is a space for Heavenly Mother. And, and I think I want to start there because as you look at um, what was just said, I believe it was this last general conference, but don't quote me, it might be one later, there was an apostle that came out who said, you know, we know that there's a heavenly mother, but we just don't know enough about her. So we're best not to talk about it. Um, within fundamentalism, do you guys feel like that, that you have some answers there about heavenly mother that um, maybe LDS folks aren't blessed with? Anybody? I remember when I first learned the Adam God doctrine, it was like years before I left the church. And uh, it was an idea that I liked, especially to think about Eve. And um, I remember when I gave birth the second time, feeling like somehow she was like spiritually there with me. Maybe this is something I shouldn't share too much but but i do remember having a good experience with that idea um my my own beliefs have evolved since then and i'm not so sure that i um espouse that um but but it was it was nice when i believed it how about that okay all right good anybody else andrea i saw you pop up there for a second yeah <laughs> i'm here um I believe there has always been a, a and can you hear me? Because I'm yep. not sure. Yeah, I okay. can hear you. <laughs> yeah, I've had really spotty internet here. So oh, you're coming through great. <laughs> okay. So um, there's always been an equal. Um, how do I put this? When we talk priesthood there is equal priesthood between 
male and female. I mean, we are together a whole. And we're taught, you know, we're taught that God is not alone. I've always felt like it was God and his wives. And, of course, within the temple, we have the officiators, which are women. And for the women. I mean, a man can't do that for a woman. He can't. That is specifically, uh, okay, let me, maybe I'll say it this way. If there was a need for it, because there was no one else, maybe. But if you have the women who can do that, they they are the ones who are supposed to do those things. And um, I think there's always been... Um, we talk about kings and priests, queens and priestesses. It's, it's all important and it's all part of Godhood. It's all part of, you can't have one without the other. Right. So we have a heavenly mother. We have a heavenly father. We have, um, we have, the women have, just as much ability to move forward as the men and not to say that they should do it by themselves. They should do that together with their husbands, but women, I mean, why do we have women anyway? You know, it, we're all part of male and female. We have to have both of those in order to have us. And um, so I definitely feel like a woman's role within the priesthood is very extremely important. And um, some of the most important blessings I've ever, ever had were at the hands of women. And um So I, I definitely, I definitely feel that, that we have a very important part within, within the gospel, within Godhood, as it were. I mean, just... So there were, there were accounts that I had read of things called like binding blessings, if I'm not mistaken, from like right before a woman was to give birth that where it was done by relief societies. Is that, is that correct? A mother's blessing. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I, I was just reading, you know, in places and I, I, I'm just a that, collection of useless information, you know, as far as that goes, I do well on jeopardy, but nowhere else does it apply. <laughs> so I'll read something and then kind of forget about it. But can you explain what that is? Uh, a mother's blessing is prior to giving birth and it is done at a ha at the hands of women and um it's a very special blessing for their birth and for their um time while while they are in in their pregnant state 
Um, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a very so I will I will um, maybe share a little with you now. Okay. When I received one of those with my first um, when I was first pregnant, and this was within the uh, um, AUB. Um, the first time this happened, um, I had to be told about it by someone else. And when I was told about it, I sought it out and I went to a couple of, well, one specific woman and, um, we talked to her about it and she, she agreed to give me that blessing. And my husband asked, do I need to be there? Do I need to seal something? Do I need to do this or that? She said, some men feel like they have to, but it's not necessary. So in other words, this is totally under, um, let's say the priesthood of a woman that she's able to give this blessing. And one of the, the things that I had was um, my whole my hips were completely out of place and you know I was worried about it and I I mentioned it to her and it was something that she added to at the end and I literally during that blessing felt my hips go into place and then afterwards after everything was done I went home my husband took me home and I went to bed and I had probably the most healing sleep I had ever had in my life. Wow. And so it's, you know, it, it's something, it is something, and it's something that's important. And, you know, I, I just, to dim diminish the priesthood of women and they they can't have it without the man and a man can't have certain things without the women it's delegated to them until there are certain things done at the hands of women women are the key to that marriage uh, any man who says otherwise is wrong uh um any woman who says otherwise is wrong Thanks for sharing that, Andrea. That was awesome. And I'm going to throw you uh, right on the spot right here. And then uh, I want to, after Ann and Teresa, uh, just check in with Melissa to see if she had anything uh, to offer. Um, we're, we're, I didn't cut you off, did I, Andrea? Did you have any more you wanted to add? No, go okay. for it. Okay, perfect. <laughs> uh, so, Ann, I remember... This was about a year before I headed out of the LDS church. And I happened to be listening to Lindsay Hansen's Parks uh, Year of Polygamy podcast. And if I'm not mistaken, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was you and Dan on the episode. And there, no? No, no? it was Benjamin Schaefer and myself. Okay. All right. Sorry. I See, there, there you corrected me. You were instructed at one time to to officiate, 
for Dan when he was sick, right? Did I share that on that podcast? Huh. Okay. I don't remember that, but I was going to share it on this podcast. So okay, I well, there. asked Dan about it and, and we talked about this. So, and I was just kind of mentioning to Teresa that I was going to bring it up too earlier. So when um, we were in Idaho, we had just started leaving the LDS church and um, had been baptized into this church. And gosh, it was probably within three to four months of being baptized into Christ church. And so, you know, I had heard some people talking about, you know, mother's blessings. I've heard people talk about that women can give blessings and that women hold, you know, a part of the priesthood. Um, and this isn't something that we talk a lot about in, in church, but we have talked about it. And Dan was really sick. We were the only members living in the state of Idaho from Christ church. And he needed to, um, he needed a blessing and we had called to see if that they, somebody could give him a proxy blessing. And it came back from, um, <clears throat> the prophet at the time that said that, you know, Anne needs to give Dan this blessing. And so someone called us and said, you know, Anne, you know, if Dan can, he can walk you through the semantics of it, but you need to give Dan this blessing. And so we had a little discussion about that and with this gentleman on the phone. And then we hung up and Dan looks at me and goes, well, this is a first. And we, you know, went into our bedroom and, um, you know, he sat with a, a desk area, office area and part of our bedroom. And he sat down at the desk there at the chair and he handed me his oil and he walked me through anointing him and the beginning mechanics of giving the blessing, you know, um, cause us women don't have an opportunity to memorize those things. Right. And the men do. Um, and when I laid my hands on his head, um, there was a great power that I felt surging through my body and coming out my hands. And I remember, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've felt that way a few times in my life, sometimes in the temple, um, but, you know, never had given a blessing before, you know, and I just, I spoke whatever words came into my mind um, at the time and gave him a blessing and closed it up. And I remember I just, I sat down on the floor and, you know, I released a lot of that emotion from it. And I said, does this happen to you every time you give a blessing? You know, because part of me, I'm like, gosh, maybe I shouldn't ask you for blessings. It takes so much energy to give these things, yes. you know? And, and part of me, I was like, this is amazing. And the next morning, Dan woke up and he was totally fine. Wow. We were going to take him to the ER if he wasn't, but he was completely fine. And I want to add to something that the Andrea has said. And I, I know right now, my husband, Dan and I are the temple president and matron um, for, for one of our temples in our church. And, you know, there are several 
women who have been called to be veil workers or temple workers in our temple. And like Teresa is one of them. And when we are doing initiatory work, and I'm using that term because it's an LDS church term, um, fundamentalists typically, at least the ones I've spoken to, call it washings and anointings. Mm. Um, but when we're doing that work, you know, we are there, like Andrea had said, it's the women giving it to women. And we're giving those blessings. We're, we were set apart and given priesthood authority to do those washings and anointings. Those are blessings that are put on a woman at that time that are very sacred. And I'm not going to get into the wording of them or anything because I hold them as sacred. But for those of you who've done initiatory work that might be LDS listening or anybody else that have, have participated in this, you know, there's a part in there where it says, you know, that this is being sealed on you. And that comes straight from the priesthood itself. And in, in that regard, women are holding the priesthood when they are doing that work and they are fulfilling that calling for, I mean, I don't know what other words to say there, but so in my mind, I think women do hold the priesthood and, and in, you know, I had a ton of questions after I gave Dan that first, that blessing that time, that first time. And, you know, I, we, in our church, in Christ church, we do something called dedications where we can, we dedicate a house. Um, and in the LDS church, they do house dedications too, but it's not quite the same thing. Great um, and, and they do, yeah, we do grave dedications and stuff like that as well. But you know, there was a time when Dan was traveling, he was up in Canada with another young man and they were doing some missionary work in, in the winter. And, um, I couldn't get a hold of anybody else to dedicate me. My mom and I were having some difficulties. And, um, so I, I called our prophet and I said, you know, can you dedicate? And he goes, you know, why don't, why don't you dedicate your house? And so then I like, was like, okay, where was that person? Did Dan write that down anywhere? And I kind of did it from my memory. Um, and, and I dedicated our home and it was a very unique and special experience that I had with just my mom and I there at the time. And so women can do some of these things, whether you want to, you know, say that, oh, it's, a prayer of faith or a blessing of faith, or you want to say it really was through the priesthood. All I can do is tell you that I know what I felt when I gave Dan that first blessing. And I know what I feel in the temple when I'm giving women those blessings. And that isn't just saying a prayer like I do with my children or grandchildren at home. Right. Teresa, was there anything you wanted to add? So mostly what I was going to talk about was the temple. Because I, oh, I mean, okay. I do initiatory work in the temple, and the, obviously, I was given that blessing, you know, and it's like, okay. And then, um, but I remember, you know, years ago, you know, learning, hey, you can give your child a blessing. You know, if your child's sick and nobody's there, you give your child a blessing. And my baby girl was so sick, and my husband worked away from home. And I put my hands on her 
and in the name of Christ, I gave her the blessing, you know, and like she said, whether you want to call it faith, you know, or, you know, my husband had the priesthood or whatever you want to call it. I, 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 even if you're given a blessing from a, a, a member of the priesthood, a man in the priesthood, you have to have faith for that blessing to come about. If you're given a blessing and you're thinking in your mind, oh, there's no way this is going to work. Well, of course it's not going to work. You know, so even with the priesthood, you have to have faith. And to me, I really think a lot of it comes down to faith. Right. You know. Thank so, you. I, I yeah. appreciate that. Uh, Melissa. <clears throat> Oh boy. Okay. So let's unpack Heavenly Mother and that she's hidden. I think with good reason. I think that the first thing you come up with when you start digging around for a, a female deity is Ishtar. Right. And that's pretty dark stuff. Yeah. And it's really dark. And I think there is a level of protection. I think they that if you are actively working in this life to prepare to meet God, that that's not in the singular. Mm -hmm. And Eliza R. Snow, you know, we know wrote, "Oh, my father," which includes that there's another there. I do think it's a matter of roles, as far as. That she's not front and center. And I do think I want to kick back to this misogyny thing, right? So, and I remember growing up in the church, how mad I was that the boys got to do all their scout stuff and all this money and time and effort was spent on that. Um, and watching that and being upset about that. And then also, I think we have definitions kind of messed up in the church as far as priesthood is seen as something to um, lord over others. But if we look at the life of Christ, who is the great high priest, his life is nothing but service and sacrifice for his fellow men. And so I think that it's really easy, especially within a sect, to kind of have it upside down that, you know, the men are in charge. And I know that a lot of abuses in families and within churches have come down because there's this idea of being subject to the priesthood when really being a priest and a king is about service and love and and leading in that your behavior is such that others would want to emulate and not being a leader in the oppression of others and i think that this kind of thing has gone on in sex for a long time and it's not exclusive to mormonism and i think that this kickback with feminism within the church and the demand for some type of equity of priesthood is kind of misguided 
uh, I believe that that women come with the priesthood, but we don't have the calling, as it were, to be part of building the kingdom. Like our role is different in building the kingdom in that we're raising the future. We're teaching the children to be able to perpetuate through the generations while our men are actively, quite literally building the kingdom. And so I understand that there's a lot of anger about not being treated, quote, fairly, you know, when the young women would do their one camping trip and, you know, the young men have gone all over creation doing their thing. And, and it's financial, too, uh, within various sects. A lot more money historically in the youth has been put toward the boys. Um, but I think that, you know, boys are more likely to leave religion. Boys are more likely to not become the men that they need to be. And so I, I'm not thinking that it's terrible that we make a larger investment financially, et cetera, in the young men because women are more faithful and there are more of us. You know, and that's one of the logistical reasons why the church is in the crisis that it's in with three unmarried women to every two unmarried men as far as young adults. You know, there's a lot of really amazing women that are not going to get married. You know, it's too bad the Lord didn't account for that and, uh, <laughs> and maybe make a plan for that. I mean, I'm just... It's yeah, too bad you can't go just open up the scriptures to, I don't know, something like, I don't know, 132. Um, and it's <laughs> too bad there wasn't something that rhymed with monogamy that could alleviate that. It's just horrible. I I, I feel. Yeah, I mean, it's, so, it's real bad. It's, I, uh, I don't understand. Yeah. So yeah. I went out and got a book. A book. I don't. Treasures of Knowledge. Okay. Knowledge. Treasures of Knowledge, Volume um, One, and there's a couple of interesting places in here where Ruin Allred, um, who we view as a prophet, and so does the AUB um, fundamentalist group also, and some of the fundamentalists do as well, I believe, or the independents do, and so um, you know, just based off these two questions, in 1974, he said, "Brethren, these women are your glory." You have the power of the priesthood, but the glory of God is in your woman folk. And I, I love that. Um, I also will admit that I have used that to uh, try to get my way once or twice. But um, <laughs> <laughs> as a reminder, honey, but. Um, <laughs> He's going to listen to this. I know he is. Okay. And um, but here on in volume one, page 312. Um, there was a question that was posed and Rulin answered it. And the question is, hey, did Brigham Young ever teach that, you know, Adam had more than one wife that came down on this earth? And he gives quite a long little speech here, but he says that, you know, Adam did come down to this earth with one of his wives and that he had others of his brethren, you know, help him come and get 
um, get the world ready for business. When it came to furnishing tabernacles for his spirit children born in heaven, he felt himself best qualified to do that work. And then he goes on and he talks about, you know, how, you know, Adam means the first man and Eve means the first women, woman, I mean, and he continues on and down at the bottom of that page, it talks about, and it says the Talmud does name two other wives of Adam, Phoebe and Lilith, and that these are named as plural wives of Adam. And, you know, we can go on and we can say, okay, so we know Adam, Phoebe, Lilith, um, and then we also in the Mormon faith, and I believe that the LDS church is where I heard this first. So you have to correct me if I'm wrong. I'm 20 years out of there, but, um, it says, or we were taught that Mary, the mother of, of Christ is one of Adam's wives as well. And so when people talk about heavenly mother, I, I want to say, I, I think that we need to respect her. I think that we need to reverence her. I think that, um, you know, it doesn't matter which one of the wives of his were my heavenly mother or your heavenly mother. Um, we need to reverence that person and, and the sacrifices that they made to get to the point where they're at and understand that as we have trials in this life, they've been through something similar and, and they deserve some respect along that lines. And so keeping some of these things hidden I can kind of understand why there's that, you know, sacred is secret thing, but we have four names that I just listed off. And if we can study all that we can about at least, you know, Eve and Mary, we can learn some characteristics about who our heavenly mother or mothers are, because while we're all individuals, we're all going to have the same beliefs and we've all been through stuff. And I went through a time here not that long ago where where our sister wife decided she was going to move away for a while she's now working on moving back in and i'm glad for that just for the record um but when she left it was really it was really hard on all of us her her children you know, our husband, myself, you know, and our, and our community in some regards as well. But after about three months, you know, she, she started talking to me and again, and we were having some conversations and I left one of those conversations. And I was feeling quite perplexed. And the next weekend, um, we had a big event out here and I had asked for a blessing. And I said, and I said, Dan, you know, who should give me a blessing? And Dan picked um, someone from our family. And in that blessing, I was told, your heavenly mother loves you. She sees what you're going through. She sees what your sister wife is going through. And I will tell you, it's not easy. And that your heavenly mother has gone through very similar things. And so I have held on to that for many reasons, um, but it gave me a great deal of comfort to know that my heavenly mother has been in the same situation and has lived this kind of a lifestyle and had frustrations like I'm having, and she did it, so can I. 
That's awesome. Thanks Wonder. for sharing that. We'll go ahead, Teresa. So I, I missed um, on the Heavenly Mother, and I know I missed some of what Andrea said, so I don't know if I'm going to repeat anything that she said. But um, <clears throat> on in regards to the Heavenly Mother, I, I feel like she's being protected. 100%. I mean, and if we think about the role of a husband, what's the, what's the one of the biggest roles as a husband here on earth? One right. of the biggest roles as a husband is to protect his wives and to protect his family. I, I can imagine if, well, I could probably maybe somewhat imagine, but maybe only because I have a good imagination. Um, you know, if, if God did open up about our heavenly mother and if people in today's world took her name in vain like they do his name i don't think that's gonna go well no you know i mean that, that, that that's just how i think i think it's a i really think it's a it is protection right and probably not just for her but you know it's probably protecting us too right <laughs> right Charlotte, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? I thought I saw you kind of perk up there here a few seconds ago. Oh, um, there were a couple things that came to mind. One of them is just that uh, the Genesis talks about Adam being created in the image of God, but it says something along the lines of uh, in the, what does it say? in in god's image he made them male and female mm -hmm. and so there's a strong Im implication there. like obviously you can't maybe it's not that obvious but if you think about it you can't make a woman in the image of a man then she'd be a man so right. for there to be a man and a woman created in the image of god it, it, there's a strong Im implication there that there's there's a male and a female god and so that was just one thing that i wanted to say Awesome. I want to touch on something Teresa said just a second ago about, you know, protecting Heavenly Mother and maybe in some ways protecting us because we take our Lord's name in vain. I shouldn't say we here, but, you know, we as a society, as people. Um, and I go back. I go back to something that happened to me as a young man where I was I'll never forget this. I was probably seven years old and we were sitting we had this kind of like breakfast bar in our house and for life of me, I don't know why I was, was such a little jerk at that moment, but my mom had said something and my dad was sitting right next to me. And let me paint you the picture. My dad was a good six inches taller than I am and outweighed me by probably 50 pounds as I stand now. He was a big guy, Wisconsin raised, drinking raw milk, eating beef. I mean, and he was a diesel mechanic. And so he had these fingers and they were huge. And I remember I smarted off to my mom and then things just went dark. And I, I woke up and uh, my dad said, do we, he, he said something very, very direct. He said, she's your mom, but she was my wife first. And understand every time you do that, this is going to be the result. And so sometimes I'm like, maybe that's a blessing. So we don't have to get the proverbial mechanic knuckles right across the jawline right so that's that's something i've thought about at times so andrea was there anything else you wanted to add there or? 
no i've just been enjoying the conversation okay. that's all <laughs> i just didn't want to be leaving you out so no <laughs> all right we're we're nearing the end here i promise i appreciate you guys being so patient with me here as i've just asked endless questions i got a question for those who joined fundamentalism from the outside converted to fundamentalism and then i got uh, one last question for Andrea before we leave. So as you converted into fundamentalism, going in knowing that the possibility of plural marriage was there, was that something that was hard to, to wrestle with? And if so, how, how did you manage to kind of work past it, if it's not too personal? Okay. Oh, there we go. Are they going first? Who's going first? I, I, you are. I, okay. Okay. Um, okay. So again, interesting. I it, don't get me wrong. Scary to think about, but I don't, I looked at individuals that I knew that were living it and it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful. Their, their family was beautiful. The way they worked together was beautiful. The way that all the moms claimed the babies and the children was beautiful. And that's what I wanted to do. So, and I know, I mean, and that's what I saw. I mean, obviously, I'm sure there were places out there where maybe that wasn't happening, but in where I saw, that's what was going on. And so scary yes did i want to do it yes and did i do it yes so so, so it was I scary at, but oh. but you saw good examples and those good examples kind of helped you kind of move past the fear a little bit or at least helped you deal with that is, is that a fair assessment yeah i don't know if i mean move past but definitely gave me something to work with okay i would go with that you know okay i mean and for you know unfortunately for a lot of us we 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 live, we live with that underlining fear of something you know but we definitely try to work with that and not let it my biggest thing is not to let the fear rule me gotcha you know and so yeah okay so i'll jump in since we're already unmuted yeah. um you know i've i've always known i've had like i said earlier a witness at a very young age that i would live this lifestyle. And, um, I think the hardest part, to be honest, um, even with just myself is that I was an only child living in a huge family. I still got to go home and have my parents as my parents. And for the first little bit, the hardest was sharing Dan. Then after that became the norm where he wasn't home every night, and I, I mentioned a little bit ago that she left and went, moved away for a little bit. I was mad that she left for many reasons, some very obvious, but here's one that maybe isn't obvious. He was home every night. <laughs> I was not thrilled. <laughs> and I love my husband. Why are you always here? Exactly. <laughs> can you go study somewhere or do something and even like one of our grandsons i don't like it when papa's here all the time 
because I can't have sleepovers when he's over here. I can have them when he's gone. Oh my goodness. And so my grandsons and I have value in this that people don't see. But yes, it's funny, but it's also kind of true because we kind of like having our own space and we like to, to do some of these. Now you said, was this hard to reconcile with when we first, you know, joined fundamentalism? I mean, I think it's interesting because there's different types of people. There's people at least that come into um, our church that either I want to live it and I want to live it today and sign me up for three. Where do you got them? Can we just pick them out like a coat hanging in the closet kind of a thing? And, and then there's the others that are like, you know, I mean, I'm good with my wife and, and the family I have, and I want to be here and participate and I want to learn, I want to grow and I want to learn about the other gospel topics and, and I'm in no rush. And I, I think those are the wiser ones, honestly, but, um, you know, I was willing if the Lord was willing and my heart and my soul were willing before, um, we left Idaho. I had a dream that there were these two dark headed children and one was older than the other. And it was a boy and a girl and that they were going, that they were our kids. Okay. But I knew that they weren't my children. Um, and our kids were, I mean, our youngest kids, when we joined this fundamentalism and, and Christ church were 16 at the time. And so, you know, having a dream of these little kids and we were in a house and, and you went down into like a sunken living room and, and the little girl was watching TV and the little boy was sitting over doing something. And I went in the room and was busy with them and hanging out and we did some stuff. And that was kind of in the dream. And I remember, um, the little girl said, Hey, you know, where's where's mom and in in the dream the little boy said oh she's there they're upstairs you know with with dad and um you know fast forward i know who those two kids are right um and and i know that charlotte and melissa have met them um and maybe even andrea at least one of them but if if i hadn't have accepted my sister wife I wouldn't have them in my lives and I didn't accept her because of those children I accepted her because I wanted to be with her and I wanted her to be with us and them to be with us and that I knew it was right I knew that in the pre-existence that she was there and that our family wasn't complete without her and so, yeah, it's intimidating. And yeah, there's times when jealousy creeps in and you're overly emotional and it's the wrong time of the month and everything collides at the same time. And you have a mental breakdown sometimes, you know, even if it's just crying in your pillow at night, you know, but then the next time when he's over there on a night that he shouldn't be and you had plans, it's like, I forget all about that emotional breakdown I was having. I'm like, oh, now I got to entertain him or deal with this or that, or you know, and, and so there's give and take in all of the situation, but we all bring gifts um, to this and we all bring in an opportunity to learn and grow with each other. And I'm, I'm probably going to 
take over for you, David, because I'm going to say something here. I think Andrea shared something online about her experience with her sister wife and the beauty of it all that really kind of opened my eyes to it. And I don't know if she wants to share any of her experiences or not in that regard, but, you know, all of these things make the difficult things worth it. Yeah. And I appreciate all the women that are on this podcast because I've learned something from all of you. And I'm very grateful for that and that we have become friends, even if at a distance. Um, but I am very grateful for the sisterhood of having a sister wife and of having you guys all as friends. Thanks, Sam. Andrea, I didn't ask the question and ask the question. You, you, so I, she said you put something online recently. Are you able to hear me? I am. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> I we just lost you. <laughs> oh, there, there, you're back again. Okay. Can you can you hear me? I said I, I've put probably a lot of stuff online. Um. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure which which thing, <laughs> that I put online. Um, other than um. My experience as having a, a sister wife, um, it was, of course, a big learning experience. Um, as as probably all of you know, um, she left quite a few years ago, about 10 years ago. And it's been an adjustment to our family. But I don't know that she was my friend. She was my companion. Um, our husband was gone a lot on the road working. And for me, having her there was always a comfort. Um, we were best friends. Andrea, I'm so sorry. We we kind of lost your audio again. Did you can you hear me now or not? I can. Yep. Yep, I can hear you now. <laughs> it's really bad. We've can't hear you again. Yeah, no, it's pretty gurgly. I'll tell you what, let's give it a few minutes. Let's go to Charlotte and Melissa, and then we'll try again here before we leave, because I really want to get to what it is you have to say. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so your question was, was it hard to reconcile plural marriage? Yeah. Okay, so in a word, yes, definitely. It was very challenging for me. Um, I 
had a couple experiences when I was younger, um, like maybe around 17 years old, I had a boyfriend and my best friend didn't. And we hung out all three together a lot. And I remember thinking one time, oh, I could see how this could be nice. Like, I feel, I feel sad that she doesn't have a man in her life and I do. I could see how it could be something a woman would want is to like share her man with her best friend. And, and then I had the same feeling when I was friends with Melissa many years later, when um, just hearing about the bad marriage she was in and um, how she had like her, I, I'm afraid of saying like too many personal details on Melissa, but I, I'll, I'll just say that I, I remember at least one time wishing that I could like be that person for her and but that was all kind of academic and when it came right down to it though it was it was really challenging for me um I didn't know anyone who was a polygamist except that my aunt like 30 years before had wanted to live plural marriage bad enough that she had left her monogamous husband to go become a plural wife and that hadn't lasted long and so that was like the only person that I knew that was uh, a polygamist and so it wasn't like I had these great examples to look at I guess and it, like when you look in the scriptures there's actually a lot of polygamy in the scriptures but they're mostly bad examples of sister wives not getting along and stuff and so it's not like you're going to find many good role models there so um so yes, it was, it was difficult. Um, and I never had one of these um, section 132 uh, conversion moments. Like I've heard women tell those stories. My conversion has really been in the living of it because um, at the time that I knew that was what God wanted for me, I just went forward with it without really having what I would say is a testimony of the principle um, I just really wanted to do what God wanted for me, and um, Joshua had his own experience. Melissa had her own. We just went for it, and it was it was really really hard. Like I just emotionally, this is this is even before Joshua and I had talked about it, but I knew that it was what was in God's will, and I was so it was on my mind so much, and it was emotionally upsetting so much that I actually. Um, stopped eating without really noticing and didn't realize it until my eight month old baby who was exclusively breastfed was like beginning to starve because my breast milk I lost it and that was when I realized oh man I gotta get my life under control better here but um so there was there was some challenging things that that happened but it was all like me it wasn't actually the situation it was just me like fixing the way I was thinking about things and um, so, so I've come a really long way. So I guess that's, that's something I want to make sure is clear. It wasn't like suddenly my life became terrible, you know, and my sister wife treated me poor. None of that. It was all just up here and having to fix the way I looked at things before. Like I'd gone into this marriage expecting monogamy and, you know, going on senior couple missions later in life and like dying side by side in bed holding hands kind of just like this simple life and it was like that 
wasn't what's going to be happening here. Like you get to figure out how to share a man. You get to figure out um, how he can possibly love two women and it doesn't take away from you at all. And all these things I've, I, and it was, it was in the doing it that I've gained such a strong testimony of it, I guess you could say. And, um, but I was still, I would say weak. Like I was, I was firm that Melissa was meant to be in our family, but I still didn't love the idea of ever even entertaining the idea of having a third wife because I didn't want to go through that again. That was so hard. Like for one thing, we kept it a secret. That was challenging. There was just a lot of pieces. So um, after Joshua had been married to Melissa for about three and a half years, he came to me with the idea of um, asking one of our friends to court him. And I did not, I couldn't say a single word to him. I literally felt like I had been kicked in the stomach. I got up from where we were sitting and I went to the bathroom and I'm not kidding you, I had diarrhea. Like it was just like a physical response to what he said, like, oh my gosh, we have to go through that again. And it took me half a day maybe of just like turmoil. I was like, he's gonna have to medicate me. Like this is horrible. And, and then I would say that was when God finally visited me and I had an experience and I was like, okay, actually I changed my mind. I want this. And, and we asked this woman to court us and she turned us down, but it was a really big learning experience for me because I like, I thought, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I never want to be sidelined by that concept again. I need to think about this every single day until it doesn't bother me anymore. And so I did, I started thinking about it all the time and trying, and I would like, just really think like, why does this bother me? Where is my false belief? I really want to fix it. And I would actually imagine the actual woman that Joshua would begin to love as well as Melissa and myself. And, um, and I was able to do a lot of growth just from the thinking about it. And about a year after that, I actually started a blog about polygamy because I wanted the growth that came from thinking about it and writing about it and talking about it. So I have this blog called Speaking of Polygamy and it's only polygamy. Like there's tons of gospel topics you can write about that are interesting. And polygamy used to not even be that interesting to me, but now it's like, I, it, it is something I wanna look at and um, grow from as much as possible and um, now I can honestly say that I'm really hopeful that someday we will be able to have a third wife. We did court someone about a year ago and, um, and it, was, it was wonderful. It was a good times <laughs> until the end. <laughs> I thought it was good. I was like, wow, I have really come a long way. And she was young and, and energetic and beautiful. That's what I'm saying. It was great until the end. But it was like, I was like, wow, like, anyway so um yeah it was hard and it took me i guess till about four years 
into marriage, three and a half, what did I say? Something like that, of actually doing it before I really, really embraced it and 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 began to have a stronger test. And now I'll defend it. Now I'll, I'll be one of those women that will defend it and I'm proud of it. And um, I still don't think everybody should do it, which I think is a difference I have with a lot of fundamentalists. But one of the reasons I don't think everybody should do it is because not everybody is up for it. It's not that, so I guess that's that's what I mean. So I was actually talking to uh, <clears throat> one of our friends about it and I said, I don't think it should be taught that living plural marriage is some mandatory thing for exaltation. However, I do feel like plural marriage is a really wonderful opportunity to grow and become a person. And he, as a monogamous LDS man who believes in the principle, doesn't live it, he said, uh, don't you think that it would be hard to keep that under wraps? Like, isn't that why people would want to live plural marriage is the growth? So even if, so I guess he was kind of feeling defensive of um, my criticism of the early Utah church leaders who spoke about plural marriage as if everybody needed to live it. And it's, it's more like, no, just if you want the growth, then that's a good, a good path to take. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Melissa? Uh, yeah, like Shana said, so we didn't have any background in it. Um, my mom referred to political living plural marriage as, quote, creepy. Um, let's see, I was monogamous through and through. I mean, we joke about this sometimes, but there, we were very, we were best friends before I joined the family, and there was a conversation that we had, we'd read this blog post about how well, plural marriage was never a thing. And, um, well, that one section 132 yeah. was fraudulent. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's still all this arguments yeah. about that. And so I remember I have this distinct memory of standing in front of my refrigerator, you know, with Charlotte was my best friend at the time. And we literally, like we literally high-fived that we would never have to live that because it was all fraudulent. <laughs> And so I kind of feel like, so I had the spiritual witness of Sister Mary Joshua, right? And, and be part of this family, but we didn't get a manual. Like we didn't have friends that did it. We didn't know anybody. Like when Charlotte said that she's, she, it's legit. We didn't know anyone. And so it really was spiritual boot camp. I mean, mm -hmm. and it was not... Like, I just feel like I got recruited. It wasn't, I wasn't even recruited. I got drafted. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was just like, ride this thing out. And, and I am one person that, like, when I read 132, I didn't have this giant spiritual witness, but what I said to the Lord, which, you know, I'm kind of dumb sometimes maybe, but I said, you know, this says that more will be revealed. And I was like, okay, well, I just got to the end of scripture. So what's up here? Let's do this. And it, it was buckle up and it really was. And so, and we had some things that really stymied us in the beginning, as far as I told somebody in my family that I really trusted. And I didn't think that three days later, I'd be getting a call from the you know Brazilian rainforest from my brother who was on you know a study abroad thing with a bunch of students. And he's literally standing on the balcony 
you know, railing to get service to talk to me about this because the person I called, like it went so far in my family that I didn't out myself, you know, and it was really early on. Um, I had also been so negative about plural marriage to my kids that once, and I talk about this in Charlotte's blog on a post that I've been so negative about plural marriage, even though, you know, as an LDS member, I knew at some point I'd have to live it, but I've been so vocal because there were some uh, plural families in the school they went to. And so they just saw it as nothing but negative. And so then mom does this crazy 180 of, you know, guess what? Mom's going to become a plural wife. And it just, it, it went bad fast and there were teenagers. So, and late teens. So it went real bad, real fast. And it was very, very ugly. And um, yeah, we didn't live together for, uh, for five years because, and that was really hard. And I think that was hardest on Joshua because he was back and forth. We lived um, when Charlotte was in Orm and I was in Tooele, it was a 70 minute drive in between. And we'd try to see each other. Um, but, you know, I had these really, really rough teenagers at that point and trying to raise them, you know, finish raising them out and try to keep them, you know, going on a good trajectory so there really was no way to live together you know, before five years until I was mm-hmm. finished raising them. And then we moved in together and it's not really together because we have our own apartments in this, in this house. So it's together, but it's not, but we make time every night, you know, for, I don't know, an hour, an hour and a half mm-hmm. to spend time with each other as a family. So, but yeah, I don't have, like, we didn't have good examples. We didn't have bad examples. We just like, yeah, yeah, we did. And and I think I know that I've fouled some things up, you know, along the way as far as just, you know, did we stay hidden for long enough or too long? I never should have told that person, even with the extracted promise, I am going to hold them accountable for that one day. Um, yeah, it, it's, and it's not easy, but some key things that I've begun to understand just about marriage to a husband is that because there's a lot of talk about sharing a husband. You can't share what you don't own. Like I kind of live by that. So I don't own my husband. Okay. If anything, from a biblical standpoint, he owns me and we can go into all and people get really angry about that. And that's probably a whole other podcast, Dave. But um, so I don't own my husband and I can't share what I don't own. Like by definition, he is a husband. And so the care that he takes care of me has nothing to do with the care that he takes of another wife. Now, does he have less time? Is it logistically crazy sometimes? Absolutely. But that is not necessarily because he loves Charlotte. It's also because, you know, he's deeply invested in this family as a whole and in moving ourselves forward in what we're doing. And so he does spend time on those things as well. Where in monogamy, you know, it wouldn't be um, so difficult to maintain to, you know, a wife versus two women. Right. So, you know, I've I've shared before on the podcast that I, uh, I lived plural marriage once before, before I, well, I lived plural marriage while I was in the LDS church. Um, But, uh, um. I can relate to what you can say about just jumping in and not having a manual. 
I had a good friend who's not LDS who asked me about it once. He says, what's that like? And I said, well, imagine you're an amateur boxer and then you get a shot to go up against Mike Tyson in his prime. That's what it's like. You're spitting out your mouthpiece a lot and you're cut all the time. But every once in a while, things start to click. And when it's good, it's amazing. So I can, I can totally sympathize with, yeah. with how you, and how you felt there. We don't recommend it as far as like, if you are called to it, awesome. You know, we, we will be here for you. Like knock on our door, we'll have a chat, but if you're not called to this, just don't, just, just don't just save your, I'm serious. <laughs> save yourself all of it. If you're not oh. called to it, because, and, and that's part of it is if you're not called to it, you're not going to have the tenacity right. to hold on there. You're just not right. because you, you have to know that this, that this is the course your life is going to take it. And, and you get to decide if you're going to go kicking and screaming, or if you're going to suck it up and, you know, take the hit. Absolutely. So. That's good stuff. All so right. David, Andrea, should we try this again here? Can we, before Andrea goes, can Teresa say one quick thing? Yeah, Absolutely. Well, that's as quickly as I can be. Okay, so I actually, so I actually lived um, plural marriage back in '97, I believe it was. That was the first time um, she left us. So, but I was very emphatic after she left that I really wanted to live it again. And um, obviously, I I didn't seek after anybody. We didn't seek after anybody. We just if we want to live it. And if God wants us to live it, then he'll, it will, it will happen, you know? So fast forward 2002, I've had a lot of problems having another baby. I ended up having a lot of medical problems. I ended up having to have a hysterectomy 2002. And, um, so that was July 3rd, 2002, I had a hysterectomy, full hysterectomy. So, you know, no more babies. And if you think that God's not going to hold you to your word, that you really want to live the principle, three weeks later, after having a full hysterectomy, we got the call for us to live the principle. And that was my best friend when we, she was my best friend at the time, but she became my best friend. And those children were my children. And that's how I felt. But if you... It was rough. I mean, I think it wasn't rough after a full hysterectomy. Anybody who's either gone through the change or had a hysterectomy, they understand emotions, you know. But if you want to live it and you are true to wanting to live it, God's going to send it your way. So are you willing to accept it when it comes, no matter what your circumstances at the time? Right. Teresa, you said something here, and and my my wife both of them have said do not mention me on the podcast so i may need to pitch a tent in somebody's yard after this but i'm going for it anyway so my wife amber my first wife who's absolutely awesome just a rock star of an individual um when when the plural marriage i had before i while i was still in the lds church fell apart Um, I hadn't, 
Let me back up. Before I joined the LDS church, there was really only two things I was really good at, football and drinking, and both I took to excesses. Um, like, I feel like Jack Daniels sometimes owes me like some of the dividend checks because I know I helped. Anyway, I hadn't drank for like 15 years, and my my second wife at the time, she left, and she was gone, and Boy, I was pissed at God. I was like, you got me into this. I prayed earnestly. You gave me an answer. This crap fell apart. You owe me some 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 answers right now. And because I was so indignant I and pissed off and hurt, I couldn't feel it. I couldn't feel the comfort that I thought I deserved. So I thought, well, let's see if I can get some comfort from Captain Morgan. And, um, I, I, I went to town. I did. I'm, I'm ashamed of it, but I did. And I did my best not to mourn in front of Amber, the loss of our sister wife, because I didn't want her to feel like she wasn't enough. I was inexperienced. I should have been more transparent. I wasn't, I know better now, but she came out in that moment and she just saw the bottle. She's like, you okay? I'm like, I'm good. Okay, baby. I was like, but I'm never doing this again. This is stupid. I'm going to forget everything I learned. I'm going to go back to the LDS church. Screw this noise. And I remember, much like like you said, Teresa, I remember my Amber just got down to like eye level, although I'm sure my eyes were crossed by that point because I was pretty much done with that bottle. And she just kind of took her, took her hands and just kind of held my head. And she's like, you don't get it. We've been called to this. And if it comes up again, we are going to do it. And yeah, sometimes there's this idea that this is something that just the guy would want. But I can't stress enough. It's a calling. You have to feel this, right? As you progress in the gospel, you have to feel it. And it, I, and I agree with, with Melissa. If you don't feel it, if maybe tap the brakes just a little so all right charlotte did you have anything you wanted to add yeah for anyone listening to this i want to say um that in your religious journey make sure that you're not just focused on getting it right for yourself but that you are making as a primary goal to perpetuate your religion to your children Mm. teach it in a way that your grandchildren will be taught it you know, that's how um, big changes happen is that, or even just good ideas conserved is that they get passed on to the next generation. So fantastic. Focus on the kids. Fantastic. And Teresa, anything you guys want to add as we wrap up here? So I just had a final thing that I just wanted to say that, um, so plural marriage, it to me, it it is a big part, but it's still only a part mm-hmm. of living fundamentalism. You know, so like especially if you live it in a group, you know, like like our group, we do a lot of things together, which we talked about. We work together. We and, and let me do like think about in a family. If you have more than one wife 
each of those wives has their own personality. Each of those wives has their own ideas. Each of their wives, everybody. So as a bigger group, you're, you're really dealing with the same thing on a bigger, bigger scale. You're just not living together. Okay? Right. But I mean, we've been building uh, a church building over here for quite a few years because we just keep adding to it. But let me tell you, there's a lot of opinions, you know, so learning to work together with those opinions and learning to go with what is finally said, this is what we're going to do and, and, and be happy with it, you know, kind of like in, you know, in, in my, in my experience in marriage and, you know, we would come together as two wives and the husband, maybe a couple of the kids, if they're older, talk about maybe something that was going on and something that needed to be done. We'd all give our opinions, but the final decision in that household was from the husband. Amen. So are we happy with, you know, we have to choose that to be happy with that and choose that that's the path that we want to, we want to follow, you know? And so it's the same as in a group, you know, somebody's going to make the final decision after all of these opinions have come out. Somebody has to, right? There has to be a chief, right? <laughs> that's the way I look at it. So anyway, um, I just, there were a couple different things I wanted to talk about. It was compassion and mercy. And I think showing compassion and mercy in a marriage whether it be monogamous, polygamy, a polygamous situation, a plural marriage situation. Those are some of the two best things I think you can give in a relationship is to have compassion and mercy for whether it be a sister wife or your husband. And I think it's the same that holds true with friends and members of your group. And I think with all that, I think you learn to work together a lot better. Awesome. So. Thank you. And? Well, I just want to kind of, you know, I'm, I'm going to say I agree with Teresa and I agree with what um, Charlotte has said, but I think, you know, we need to think about our future um, as in society as a whole, um, religiously and otherwise, and who are our future, and that is our children. And we need to create an environment that is safe, loving, um, and where they can learn and grow in knowledge and become good citizens of whatever society they choose to be. And for those who are listening, you know, whatever your um, path is right now could change. You know, something's gonna trigger you to, to be called to do something. And what you it mean does- You could be slapping high fives with your best friend saying you'll never have to live polygamy and then it'll change. You could, yes, very much so. <laughs> very much so but just just like charlotte and melissa right so um but it could be that you know you're you're not feeling called to do something right now but in the future you are and i think the the best advice that i can give you is what i applied and that is take it to god you know he is he's our father and he knows what's in our hearts he knows what we agreed to do and he's going to help you along that path and it's never going to be easy but it is something that that you can do 
if you get an answer that it's yours to do. And don't, don't just jump in because it's trendy or it looks cool or you're upset with whatever's going on in, in, your, in your life or in your church or your community. Pray it out, seek an answer and make sure it's something that's good and safe for you and your family and your children. Beautiful. Awesome. All right. I wanted to save this to the end. And that is there are, there's two women on this podcast who were more instrumental than they'll know about keeping me doing this. And early on when I was like five, six episodes in, I do what I always do, which is start to think a little too much. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? And the, the, the first two that reached out to me, one was Ann Hatch, and she just gave me all these ideas of who I could have on the podcast. The other was Melissa, and she just messaged me, and she said, keep it going. This is great, and you guys did more to help, help me through that little bit of a dark time I had when I first started this than you'll ever know. I would challenge anybody after this episode to stick to their stereotypes. I, I think I think you ladies have absolutely shattered that. And I just can't tell you how thankful I am to to be associated and and know each one of you. I think you're strong, independent women, and I'm so thankful for the opportunity I've had to get to know you. So with that, everyone, until next time. We'll, we'll talk to you later. Bye. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast.